that talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to the big Thursday Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. Your Ohio State coverage team, Doug Limerick, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means. And guess what we're talking about? Everything, everyone's favorite topic. The thing that sports fans love to talk about the most, losing. I'm worried about the headline. I'm, worried, I'm a little worried about the headline, and I'm perhaps worried about the topic. We did get an overwhelming and, and a very quick response to the survey, but Nathan, is it possible that I am driving this episode into a ditch by starting it off by talking about Ohio State football losses? I think the pressure is on you to write the headline that gets people to actually click on this. I know we have our loyal base of subscribers who are going to turn in every week and we love you all. And we thank you for joining us again today and tomorrow and Saturday night and every day you'll be with us. But for those casual listeners, I think the challenge is on you to, to give them, to, to make them believe that this is something they need to listen to and that they can't skip it. So I think it's an interesting topic and I think people are going to, I'm interested to hear what people had to say about this. I think it's possible that when you clicked on this podcast episode, the headline of the episode was, Jim Harbaugh is a turd and that, that we're not talking about that at all, but I just needed a headline to grab people's attention because people love it when the headline on the podcast is something is wrong with Jim Harbaugh. So that might be a new strategy for us. I, I, I've told this story many times before. When I worked in Delaware, before I came here, I worked in the Philadelphia suburbs and this was still like at the beginning of the internet kind of thing. And it was when Donovan McNabb was the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. And he was, very controversial. Some people loved him. Some people thought he was an underachiever and something happened with like a company in Philadelphia. And there was a headline on a story that was like, you know, McNabb ousted amidst controversy or something. And it was about like the CEO of a company. And it was the most popular story on the website that day because everybody thought it was about Donovan McNabb and it was about some other guy. So I'm not saying that you should purposefully put misleading headlines on things just to get clicks. But maybe I did this one time because I didn't want to put a headline on this podcast that was, let's talk about Ohio State losses. What we are talking about is the five types of Ohio State losses and how people take them in, which ones they think are the worst, which ones they can handle the most. And I will say we have the results of the survey. I was a little surprised by the results. Stephen, do you think that there are great distinctions here in general with a program like Ohio State when you have losses you know, maybe you're up. It's an upset. Maybe you lose to a good team. Maybe it's a blowout. Maybe it's close. Do fans make distinctions like that? Or do you think most people are like, like, ah, my team lost. It stinks. And like, I don't really make distinctions. I think Ohio state fans do because they don't do it. They don't lose enough. And so you can always, there's always an explanation for the loss, whether it is an ups, an upset because you can point to something within that team that was a flaw that just got exploited that week, or they just play, happened to play a really good team that year with a really good quarterback. When you don't lose this much, there's always an explanation for why it happened. So I think maybe Ohio State fans are like that. Yankee fans can maybe be like that. Laker fans. When you're a fan of a, of a team who is constantly winning, you can kind of analyze the losses a little bit more than other teams' fan bases can. So I think Ohio State fans are the – maybe only one or two programs in college football who can be like this. It is. You're right. They're not, they're not used to it. 
And it does open kind of a window because everyone kind of remembers the losses because they're so rare. And I do think the comparisons you make to other fan bases are correct. We're not only going to talk about losses for a two-hour podcast because even I'm not that stupid. We're going to talk about this at the beginning, and I think you will find the results of the survey interesting. We're going to talk about some news of the day from Wednesday, interviews with, with Zach Harrison, interviews with Greg Madison, interview with Brian Hartline about some of the freshman receivers. Nathan and Steven got some good info on that. We're going to talk about that we're going to touch briefly on what the next nonsense bracket might be for tech subscribers we have some great suggestions but we're only going to touch on it because i actually think we might have to do a whole separate podcast on what the next bracket might be because i sent it out to tech subscribers a week ago and said hey what should we do the chain restaurant bracket is over and we got like 120 responses immediately and they're just so good i can't even wrap my head around some of the options but i want to just give you some examples of what's out there and then we're going to do rapid fire we do have about 10 or 12 rapid fire, including the news on Wednesday that Ohio State will not let any fans in anymore, at least to Saturday's game against Indiana. They're not sure about the Michigan game at the end of the year. People are asking, why is the media still allowed to go if the friends and family are no longer allowed to go? Some people are worried about, is Big Ten football going to shut down? We have a question about ketchup. We have a question about the offensive ceiling for this team. Does this season feel like feel like 2018? Is it time to give up on Trey Sermon? What if Luke Fickle had taken over instead of Urban Meyer? Graham Mertz has a Big Ten quarterback at Wisconsin. What's going on at LSU lately? And which cereal box character would all three of us want to be? And that is a, a, a great opportunity. I like to think of myself on a cereal box. So we'll figure out, you know, whether Steven is more like Tony the Tiger or that leprechaun guy, you know? I mean, like, who, who knows which way it could go? So we have a lot to get into, but we're going to talk about this survey first. And Nathan, the idea that, like, this sort of came up, and we're going to talk about the Indiana game on the Friday preview pod. And we did talk about Indiana a lot on the postgame pod on Saturday since there was no Ohio State game. I don't want to give people the idea that the only reason we're talking about this is because, like, I think or we think Ohio State's going to lose to Indiana. But certainly, I don't know. I mean, Indiana's better than the other teams they're playing in this regular season. So is that in the air at all? And, and I, I guess I'm asking it almost from the perspective of what the Ohio State coaches and players are saying about it. Where do you think the level of respect is right now toward Indiana? Is this football team behaving as if they actually view Indiana as a legitimate threat, do you think, Nathan? Well, behaving is a tricky word. Um, they're, they're saying it uh, when we're asking them about it because nobody, I think, at Ohio State is dumb enough to come out and say, yeah, I have no idea why they're ranked in the top 10. I've watched them on film and they stink. Like, they're not going to say that. So, and then I don't think that's true either. I don't think Indiana stinks. But so, so that, that now behavior is, is more of a behind the scenes thing to me. Are they taking it seriously in practice? And I imagine they are. And like I said last week, I think the cancellation of the Maryland game was a bad thing for Indiana. I think you're going to have an extra motivated. I know there's the, the question of rust versus rest. and and But I think this is going to be an Ohio State team that feels like something was taken from them last week, and they're going to be motivated to come out and take it to Indiana this week. But I do think there is a respect there. I think they look at, at Tom Allen. I think they look at Michael Penix and, and the other athletes in that in that program, and they see them. You know, The thing that, that, that jumped out to me was Josh Myers yesterday saying that, one thing that, that jumps out to him on film was how hard Indiana plays. I think that is not a backhanded compliment. I think he was saying you can tell that these guys 
compared to some of the other Big Ten teams that they see, you see the effort there. I think when these guys look at film against teams at the bottom of the Big Ten, I think you can tell when somebody's mailing it in, when somebody is not giving it a full effort. They do not see that from Indiana, which is the reason why Indiana is 4-0 and part of it. I mean, they're in, they're in every game, but I think that also just the drive that they see from Indiana is something they respect, regardless of the athleticism, the skill, all that stuff. How much did you feel like you were buying that this week, Stephen? Do you think they, they really believe that, or do you think they're kind of just saying it? I think they believe this is the best team they're going to play on the Big Ten schedule. For whatever that means it's, is what it means. But I think the way Justin Fields was talking about, you know, when he was he was asked about why they're able to cause so many turnovers, and he was talking about because they send blitzes and they send pressure and blitzes from all over the place. And I asked him if it reminded him of any other teams. I wanted him to maybe say, "Hey, yeah, Penn State did it a little bit in the past, in the second half of that game." Obviously, Clemson sends blitzes from all over the place. If there were any other teams who do it quite like Indiana does it, but I, I do think there is a level of respect in the sense of they know that at least. Indiana will be able to throw some things at them that nobody else on the schedule is going to be able to throw at them. Now, do I buy that this is one of the harder games they're going to have? This is going to be a tough game? No, but I do buy the the thought process of when you look at what the Big Ten is right now, this is probably their most competitive game. Now, that might still mean a three-score game at the end of the the day, but I do think that they think that at least for a couple of series, Indiana will be able to challenge them in a way that the rest of the Big Ten won't be able to do. Okay, so we don't think it's going to be a loss, but it's a competitive game. So let's talk about losing. Again, I can't believe we're doing this. <laughs> Why? This is one of those, yeah. I mean, it's like, again, I don't want to pander. I don't want to pander and just be like, today's topic is, is Ohio State excellent or super excellent? Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. But I mean, also, you know, I'm not sure losing is the right topic. Anyway, I thought the survey was interesting. I'm going to start with what I had as the last question on the survey and i'm going to ask you guys to guess what you think the answers are here this i wanted to get a handle at the end so i asked all kinds of very specific questions about losses and i'm going to bring up the five categories of losses in a moment so i asked all these very specific things and then the last question was very broad and this is the broad question which best describes your general view of any ohio state loss these were the options I would handle losses okay, even if my team went six and six every year because losing is part of the game. So that's just like you just handle losses okay as a fan no matter what. Not specific to Ohio State, you just handle it. I would hate losses even if my team went six and six every year because I just hate losing. So it's not really about specifically Ohio State being Ohio State. You just hate losing. You're just a fan that hates losing. You don't handle it well. Then the other two are more Ohio State specific. The Buckeyes lose so rarely I handle losses worse because they are rare. So because you are an Ohio State fan, you're so accustomed to it. When the rare loss comes, you freak out. Or the Buckeyes lose so rarely, I handle losses better because they are so rare. That Listen, your team is so awesome. You have a little perspective. You could be a Rutgers fan. So when they lose, you're like, okay, you know what? I don't like it, but I'm going to roll with it because I'm so lucky to root for such a successful team. Those are the four choices. Nathan, which do you think was the winner, was the, the one that fans, the tech subscribers at 614-350-3315 said best describes in which of those four? I think these questions are interesting because if you're a fan, are you answering what you truly believe or you're answering what you want to be true of yourself, the way you actually would handle the loss? I think the answer, though, is probably, 
I guess they handle losses better because they are rare. I think, and the, I guess the way I come to that is I think of when I was more of a fan, like when I was a big St. Louis Cardinals baseball fan, they would win a world series every once in a while. So if they got in the playoffs and lost, you were like, you were disappointed, but it wasn't like the end of the world. And that's kind of, I guess the way I think of Ohio state is being kind of like that same level of achievement. Cause the next win, the next opportunity for greatness is always just around the corner with Ohio state. Almost as no matter how bad a loss is, you know, the 2006 national championship game, you know, they made it to the national championship game again the next year. And, and then 2006, when they lost, they were only four years removed from a national championship. You know, you're so disappointed in the big 10 championship in 2013. Oh my gosh. And I wrote a piece earlier this week on cleveland.com slash OSU, where I, of all the recent games, the one that I think maybe applies to this, and I don't think Ohio State's going to lose, but I, as we talked, I think, on the podcast earlier, I thought the 2013 loss to Michigan State, although Ohio State was only a six-point favorite in that game, they're a 21 or 20-point favorite in this game. That Michigan State team, pretty good quarterback, pretty good skill, defensive-minded team, reminds me a little bit of this Indiana team. But as disappointing as that was in 2013, it's a 24-game Urban Meyer winning streak, they lose that game, they win the national championship the next year. You know, there's like as disappointing as the Clemson loss to end last season was, you got Justin Fields back this year. Like the next opportunity is right around the corner. So Nathan, you have that big picture view. You think our texters had that big picture view because the losses are so rare. They handle losses better. That's your pick. Steven, which do you think won? Uh, handle losses worse. And I think three of the last four years kind of show it because of that fact of you could see it coming. And also, yes, when you're Ohio State, you're competing for national championships. And as they've seen over the last couple of years, one loss to a team you're not supposed to lose to ruins your chances at competing for a national championship. So when, yeah, you, you win all the time. And so maybe one loss shouldn't be that big of a deal. But when that one loss is the difference between you competing for a national championship and going to some random role, you going to the Rose Bowl or going to the Cotton Bowl and not in the playoff, then I think you handle it worse because every loss means more when you're Ohio State. Steven Means, hardened, cynical, student of life. Nathan Baird, uplifted, Pollyannish, naive, wide-eyed, child in the world. I like that Steven and his analysis called the Rose Bowl random. I don't know, you end up yeah. with some random Rose Bowl. <laughs> Who cares about the Rose Bowl? Steven has the pulse. 68% handle it worse because they're so good. 68%. 17% handle it better because their losses are so rare. 13%. I hate losing no matter what. Even if my team was six and six, I would hate it. 2% losing is part of life. Even if my team was six and six, I wouldn't get so upset. So two thirds. The idea that your team is so good makes you crazier every time they lose. Steven is nodding his head like he knew this was coming. Nathan, you are a little surprised by that. Well, and the more I think about it, I, I see where they're coming from just because, you know, from the time I got here last year and everybody's still you know, being freaked out by the specter of what's going to be this year's Purdue or Iowa, those, those sorts of things. So I should have thought about that more in answering this question. But the interesting, it, it, it's a departure from what the rest of the survey is as you go through it, because there it's a little bit more game specific. And there's obviously a big difference between losing a close game to Clemson in the national semifinals, I would argue, than losing to Purdue or Iowa and not even getting to go to the playoffs. You could have a very different reaction to those two 
very different kinds of losses. So. I agree with that. I think some recency bias probably sinks in with this. But also, this is a fan base this year who's already going, is this 2018 defense? Like, I don't know how many fan bases have to deal with. Remember remember how this defense cost – or remember how the quarterback cost us – is that going to – I don't know how many fan bases have that. But, yeah, I do think the last few years have maybe put some blood in the water to that theory a little bit. And listen – your fans. This is the great thing about being a fan. That's why it's fun to be a fan of a team that wins a lot. You don't have to be rational. And I do think if you ask people like really, really, truly, 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 whatever they are in the last, you know, since Urban Meyer got here, whatever their record is, 103 or whatever it is. I know it's not quite that good, but I mean, it's ridiculous. Like really, like you do the losses root, like really, or do you get so much out of all the wins and then yeah, the losses hurt, but I mean, people understand it. But but they remember the losses. So I tried to categorize the types of losses and it's mostly recent. Cause I, I you know, I, I don't really want to delve too much into like losing to Nick Saban in 1998, right. With that Cooper team. Like that's not exactly what it's about. I kept it mostly recent. Cause they're, I think the, the most recent losses, like in the last four years, four or five years, you cover all the five types of Ohio state losses in that. So we'll go through one by one quickly, but, I, I want to get to the end and then we're sort of ranking the final questions. We're like of all the types of losses and here are their examples, which are the worst, but let's go through the types quickly and just discuss that kind of loss. The first one I asked about is the kind of loss that is kind of like a normal loss. I would say I described it as how do you view a loss to a very good team that just beats the Buckeyes. And the example I gave was the Oklahoma game in 2017. Baker Mayfield comes in here. He goes on to win the Heisman Trophy. Oklahoma is very good. They are a national power. They were a good version of a national power. There's no shame in that. I think, you know, other examples of this would have been like 2008 and 2009 USC. I think these are more national because there's just nobody in the Big Ten, actually, who is at this level, which is part of the problem with Ohio State, that if you actually had a program in your conference that was absolutely equal to you, then a loss to them could just be like this too, where it's just like, listen, we're good. We're a good program. They're also very good, and they just beat us. Is that is that a is that a good category for a type of loss? And And you guys weren't here to cover Oklahoma 2017. This does not happen all that much for Ohio state, but is this a good way to categorize a type of loss, Steven? Yeah, it is. And also I love the, the explanations you gave when you had people for the, every answer that you have, cause it fits it perfectly. I, I think this is a, I don't want to say a good loss, but it's most of college football suffers these types of losses. But to the point that you brought up, there's not a lot of big 10 teams who can do this to Ohio state. So they're not as used to it, but I do think this is a good place to start a, a normal loss. Two good teams play at each other. Somebody has to win. Okay. So let's go on to the second loss. And we'll get to the voting on it at the end. The categories that I gave for each type of loss to vote on it were, I hate it. It's not at all acceptable. I dislike it. I'm angry, but I grudgingly accept it. Or I'm okay with it. It's part of football. It happens. So those were the three levels for each loss. The second type of loss we're talking about is, how do you view a loss to a good team that the Buckeyes probably still should have beaten, but that at least they're a good team? 
And the example I gave was 2016 Penn State. Now, 2016 Penn State goes on to be a very good team. They're number five. They almost make the playoff. They go to the Rose Bowl and play a great game against USC. You know, they're not quite Oklahoma. You know, as there's, the, there's the special teams mishap at the end, the block field goal that leads to the, the touchdown that, that puts Penn State over the top. So you really think to yourself, man, Ohio State probably shouldn't have lost that game. But it, at least it's to a good team. Nathan, is this – that's a little different than the Oklahoma game to me, where it's just like Oklahoma just beat you. This is when we're like, okay, 2016 Penn State, Ohio State should have won, but there's no shame in it. Is this a type of loss that, that is a way to categorize it, Nathan? Yeah, and I think it's a, a loss that Ohio State fans should almost be more accustomed to if the rest of the Big Ten were able to either – live up to its end of the bargain, or I guess you could look at it if Ohio State hadn't just separated from the Big Ten so significantly here in recent years. Because, like, this is the kind of game that – this is what the Michigan rivalry should be. At least once every, like, five years, you should play a really tough game against Michigan that they happen to win. Or once in a while, Wisconsin should be able to complete some passes and beat you in the Big Ten championship game. Like, that's – if those teams were just playing up a notch, then this would happen more often. And even this kind of loss is still just so rare for Ohio State fans, I think. Like, this – the, the – because this Penn State game, like, what would be another example of this? Like, what would be, like, I guess maybe the Michigan State games from, if you go back a few years before the Penn State game? I did not include the 2015 Michigan State loss as an example, because that was just too screwed up. Like, they were so good. They should have been a dynasty. Yes, Michigan State went to the playoff, but my God, they were a dynasty in the making. Like, that's just too painful to relive. I, I didn't go down that road, but there's not many of them. You know, there, there was a loss, like in 2005, my first year on the beat, they lost to Penn State when Penn State was really good. And that was like a really good, tough, competitive game. And Penn State's like ends up as a top four team at the end of the year. That would have been one of those losses. There was Terrell Pryor's freshman year in 2008. You lose to like a tough, low scoring game to Penn State. That's kind of one of those losses. But again, there's not that many. There's just not that many of these. But this is another category. Third kind of loss is one that people don't like that much. How do you view a loss that came out of nowhere and you never expected? And of course, the examples here, 2018 Purdue, 2017 Iowa, 2009 Purdue. This is a familiar one to Ohio State fans. Not, that, again, familiar. It's like, ugh. You had two, you had three of these in the last, like, 15 years. Steven, this is, this is, this is kind of like, we talk about these kind of losses a lot, but this is a very specific kind of loss, right? Yeah, these are the losses that ruin seasons. And because it's only one loss, but it's such a bad loss to such a bad team that it keeps you out of what you want. If, if they had that, if 2017 and 2018, if those losses would have been to almost anybody else on their schedule, other than maybe Michigan or Penn State, Ohio State's probably in the playoffs those two years. Just the way they look that season, they're probably getting into the playoff. But because of who those losses to, I mean, in 2018, that's why Oklahoma got in. They were both one-loss conference champions, but Oklahoma's loss looked better than Ohio State's loss did that season. And the same thing can be said in 2017. So, yeah, these are unacceptable, but you could have – these are just not okay losses at all. And in recent vintage, these are more frequent than the losses we were just talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, because – there have been two of these in the past four years, as opposed to like almost none of the other ones. So yeah, this is, these are the ones that really stick in people's minds. And the thing that's hard about this is that these kind of losses happen in college football. I mean, this is what, I mean, this is, you know, what Iowa state 
rises up and beats Oklahoma or a kind of loss like that. I mean, Oklahoma already had a loss like that this year. You know, when, you know, Stanford and Jim Harbaugh beat that USC team, like whatever it was, 15 or 20 years ago. Like, it's one of those things where the games where 99 times out of 100, the favorite wins, the top five ranked heavy favorite. Well, there's so many games. I mean, there's there's hundreds of games in these college football season. Usually there's one or two games like this each season that a game out of nowhere that knocks off a national title contender. So they're both rare, but also sort of a normal part, I think, of the college football experience, right? Because, and these games don't happen as much in the NFL because the NFL, there is such parity, there almost isn't a category for a loss like this. I guess if the Jets would have beaten the Chiefs a couple of weeks ago, it would have been this kind of loss. But there's no really single loss in the NFL where you're like, I cannot believe that because it's a parody-driven league. You have to have a gap. College football has the natural gap in talent and resources that allows the potential for losses like this, which is why I think it does really drive people crazy. Two more types of losses. How do you view a close loss when a national title is in reach and you felt the Buckeyes should have won? And this is the 2019 Clemson game. This is you're right there. You're on the cusp. You're it's at, you know, towards the end of the year. I don't think it has to be a playoff or a national championship game loss. I mean, I think if you would lose, if you had a season where you lost like a really good team in the big 10 championship game, I think it would fit into this, but this idea, Nathan, this is a particular kind of Ohio state loss too. And this is the one that's freshest in people's minds. And it was their most recent loss. It's the one that I think might be the most polarizing in the vote in some ways too, because if depending if you're if you're more pragmatic like I am, you're like, hey, you 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 know you're down to the four best teams in football. They're going to be in a lot of years should be pretty evenly matched. Sometimes it's just the, the the you come down on the wrong side of the razor blade thin margin between these two teams. And there's other people who are going to say, but you you get these shots so rarely that when you're that close to it, you have to take it. And then if you if you come up just short then that's going to grade on you even more I mean, even more so maybe than if you got blown out in that same situation where it looks like you're not anywhere close to being on that team's level that if you are head-to-head with the team that you're evenly matched with you've got to find a way to win so I'm, I'm eager to hear what the result of this vote is because I could see it being a very divisive question I think these types of losses is where I think you need the most detail to it because it might depend on exactly what happened that led to that loss was it just simply they just played better than you down the stretch? Or was it a ref's decision or a ball placement? It's, it's no different than Michigan's loss when it was – where's JT Barrett? Did he get a first down or not? And Jim Harbaugh is doing that. He was just yada, yada, and all that stuff. Losses like this require detail. It can't just be, oh, I hated that loss, oh, I loved that, that win for the other side. It's, it's a little more to it than that. So it's a lot more of a complex answer. I do think it's like, did fate screw you? Did the ref mm. screw you? Did the other team make an amazing play at the end of the game that, you know, Kyler Murray, Hail Mary kind of thing, you know, Buffalo mm. Bills fans. Those were mm. two good game, two good teams. The Bills did everything right. They make a play at the end and then Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins do that. Like it's kind of that kind of game. But I do think, yeah, it did, it's a little bit exactly because a lot of times, the games we're talking about here, equal talent often turns on one play. So what exactly was the play, right? Did you kind of screw up? Did they do something awesome? Was there an outside force that happened? That kind of thing. So I do think you're right. Although 
And again, for each of these, I gave a description, then an example. I mean, the specifics of this is really, if you're thinking about this, I think everybody voting on this is thinking about the 2019 Clemson play, mm-hmm. playoff semifinal. So they are thinking the overturn, fumble return. They are thinking the last throw, right? The Olave route and all that stuff. I think they have it in their head. The last one specific is at that level on a national stage with a championship in your grasp and you get your doors blown off. This is 2016 Clemson, 31 nothing. This is the national championship game, 41-14 in 2006, where you think, here we are. And then it's like, oh, no, that was not it at all. So, again, this is, I think, a little more rare, where it's like, hey, you made the championship or close to it, and then you got killed. That is a very specific kind of thing. It just so happens that there are a couple examples that Ohio State fans could absolutely grab onto, Stephen, that they understand this kind of loss. Yeah, I think I'm most interested to see the, the results to this one because I think your answer to this changes over time. I think what it is in the moment is it's a reality check loss. It's just like you, you think you're one thing and then you very quickly find out over a 60-minute game you are nowhere near it. You're not even close to what you thought you were. And you see a lot of ripple effects from that. And in the moment, hey, you might hate it. But, you know, 10 years from now, you might go, I lo- you still hate the loss, but you're a little more happy that it happened because you w- your program wouldn't be where it is right now if it didn't have that reality check. It's, a, it's almost like having a tough conversation that somebody needs to have with you. You don't want to hear it, but it's the best thing for you. I think context is important, too, because I would imagine that Oklahoma looks at the shellacking it took from LSU last year differently than maybe Ohio State looked at getting the doors blown off by Florida in the national championship game. Like I think the expectation going into the game is going to dictate how you feel about that blowout. I think Oklahoma looks back at last year and is like, hey, what could we do? That was just like one of the most incredible teams of all time, um, whereas – Ohio State, Florida, and you, your perspective is different, Doug. You were there covering it. But my, my impression is that that was probably a team that expected to be able to compete down to the final buzzer more than, than Oklahoma probably did against LSU last year. And I do, I do think you're right. There's the expectations you had going in. And then there's, as Steven said, there's sort of the after-the-fact big-picture view. And again, it's very complicated. Everybody thought Ohio State was going to win that game. But these two specific references that we're talking about with the 06 Florida loss in the 2016 Clemson loss, the 2006 Florida loss was to Urban Meyer. And that was his first national championship. But it's like, how could that happen? It's like, I don't know. It happened to against one of the best coaches in college football history who was a master motivator and got some of that awesome talent. And by the way, it ushered in the rise of the SEC and the fact that those teams, their best teams are stacked with dudes. And we just didn't realize it in the moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You thought Ohio State was going to win, but you got urbaned, man. You got urbaned. What are you going to do? And then 2016 Clemson, Ohio State, you know, people have to remember, that was like a toss-up game going in. I don't remember what the line was, but a lot of people were picking Ohio State to win that game. And guess what? You got Deshaun, man. Deshaun Watson is as good of a college football player as we have seen in the last 25 years. That guy is unbelievable. So, like, what are you going to do? You got Urban and you got Deshaun. So, in the moment, it is. It's a reality check a little bit, I think, Stephen. I think that's a good word for it. But also, sometimes you got to tip your cap. Even if you get your doors blown off and you say, man, sometimes that happens when you're going against the absolute best. So, here's how we will 
discuss this now. I have, again, big picture things at the end. I asked, I ranked all five games, the five types of games with their examples. And I said, which of these games do you, can you handle like the best and which game do you handle the worst? So that was a specific vote, but I want to talk about these five games. And I wrote down the hate, dislike, and okay with it numbers for each of the games. So let's start with the okay with it discussion. Which game do you think had the highest percentage that people were okay with it? Nathan, we'll start with you. Which one were people like, you know what? Yeah, I can live with that type of game or with that specific example, and I can run through them again if you would like me to run through no, them again. Or let well, you I, I, I know my answer was the, the first one, which is the very good team beats the Buckeyes because – because we're in that case, we're also talking specifically about a regular season game. So I think that context is important here too, that somebody knows that if they take that loss against a very good team, even at home, um, that it doesn't derail a season. And That's it's like the point. only, it's the only loss on this list that doesn't kill your season potentially. Steven, do you agree with that? I do agree with that. There was still a playoff team. If we're going to use that Oklahoma one as an example, yeah, they hate what Baker did after the game, but the idea that a Heisman trophy winning quarterback was able was able to beat your team you can live with that a little bit more i did again the specifics do matter i i did not include like if you include the fact it's a close loss to a good team and that good team has a crotch grabbing future brown at quarterback who tries to plant a flag in your turf (laughs) are you okay with it are you okay with it so i like baker I, you know, I'm, I'm I think a better way to put it is just another playoff caliber team because Oklahoma playoff, playoff. right. Oh, yeah. Another, another playoff caliber crotch grabber. And I yeah. am, I am pro crotch grab in the right context. Buckeye talk. You guys are right. That was by far the one that got the highest amount of I'm okay with it vote. 25% of the people for that game said they were okay with it. So there's still 75% of the people who are like, not okay with that Oklahoma type loss, but that was the highest 25% for the Oklahoma 2017 type loss, 15% for the Clemson 2019 type loss, a close loss when you're on the edge of a national title, even if it hurt you 15% said they could live with the Clemson loss 8% with the national stage blowout. They were okay with that. Not very high. Now these are not very high. Okay. Numbers. Listen, the I'm okay with it. Numbers, not real high in general, across the board, which is not a surprise. 8% for the national stage blowout, 4% for the surprise out of nowhere, Iowa-Purdue loss, 3% for the good team that you should have beaten like Penn State 2016. So that was the lowest. Sort of like the okay, the good team, but you feel like you should have beaten them. They were the least okay with that. Even less okay with that than they were the surprise loss. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Like, and I wonder why that is. Is it because you just, you almost feel like there's something out of your control that's leading to that kind of Iowa Purdue loss, not to get into the whole metaphysical things that may or may not have been happening in those particular two games. But like, I, I wonder if that's it, that there's part of it where you just like, you're almost paying the, the success tax by having the, the gods of football did give you one of those losses every once in a while. Yeah, that is one of those. And I do think the 4%, I mean, again, not very high, 4% who are okay with the Iowa-Purdue loss, 
is I do think some acknowledgement of like crazy stuff happens in sports. What are you going to do? You think you're, you think you're never going to get upset? Like never? Like in a hundred years, you're never going to lose a game like that. I mean, everybody loses a game like that every now and then. And it just sticks with you because it's so rare. So, but it was still only 4%. All right, let's go to the hate. Let's go to the other end. We'll deal with the middle last. The, I just, I can't, it, I just hate every part of it. It is not at all acceptable. Which one, Steven, do you think led, got the highest percent for the absolutely hated unacceptable loss? Uh, losing to the Purdue and Iowa's of the world got, world got to hate because it's never acceptable to lose to anybody who's beneath you and everybody in, and especially teams who are at the bottom of a conference that's already filled with teams who are beneath you and they ruin your season. And usually you know exactly who to blame for it, whether it's the quarterback development um, or it's just the, not the most talented guy playing quarterback or the defense isn't getting its job done. You, you can always blame it on something. And Bill, usually, Davis, Bill, Bill, Davis, Bill, Bill Davis. Bill Davis is being employed at Ohio State. And, and it's, it's crazy because you blame that, that thing goes away, and immediately that thing gets fixed. And you're probably thinking, why couldn't this have been the case last year? To anyone listening to this podcast who, while Steven was listing – the reasons for that loss. If you yelled Bill Davis before I did, I want you to feel this podcast hug coming your way because you're my people. <laughs> and I know there's at least a couple of you out there. You're my people. And the fact that I know you exist in the universe gives me a warm feeling in my body. Nathan, do you agree with that? The surprise loss? Is that what people hate the most? Or you think it's something else? No, it should be. And that's, that's what I would pick just because it's the opposite of what I said before. This is the one loss that almost guarantees a season being ruined or, or like has the highest probability of doing that. And, and, and I think that, that what's going to play into this here is the, 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 the specific losses that apply to this category that people can envision. It, it's not just that they – it was how they came, first of all, that Iowa and Purdue just kind of took it to Ohio State in both those games and the direct consequences of both of those losses. Those losses – and it ruined those seasons. Those losses almost single-handedly kept them out of the playoff. It really is. In the modern era, when you are a great team, the losses are so punitive. It's like you can't – there is no such thing. Ask the committee. It's like there almost is no such thing as a loss that's no big deal. I mean, it really, it really truly is that way. Every time you don't walk off the field a winner, it feels like it has a chance to ruin what you're trying to do. You're both right. 86% said they hate the surprise loss. Next highest was, and this surprised me. This might've been the most surprising result. The next highest on the hate was the blowout loss at the championship level. The Clemson 2016 loss, that got 60% hate. The game against a good team that you still should have won, the Penn State 2016 loss, 44% hate. The national level you should have won. You're right there. The Clemson 2019 loss, only 32% hate. Half as much hate as the blowout. Although I do think like the Clemson 2019 loss is not embarrassing. I think maybe people thought that the Clemson 2016 loss was embarrassing. That reality check also comes with like, hey, we could use that. But also like, hey, I'm like maybe not like quite as proud of my program as I, you know, today as I am on most days. And then only 9% hate the Oklahoma 2017 loss. So that's not surprising. 
real quickly on the middle vote, the dislike, Oklahoma lost 65%, 53% each for Penn State 2016 and Clemson 2019, 53% each dislike. Clemson 2016, 32% dislike, and only 10% dislike on the surprise loss. There was too much hatred there. So that that's the overall view on that. Then I did ask this specific question, which is kind of like that, but not exactly. Because this asked you to pick among the five. This is a lot of losing discussion. They very rarely lose. Your team is really good. You're lucky to be a Buckeye fan. Everybody be happy. There's a vaccine coming. Everybody's happy. I just want to throw that in there. Nathan, you're literally falling asleep. I can see your eyes were closed (laughs) for 13 seconds. A couple minutes ago, it was the in a classroom. This professor is boring me to death with this lecture. I have done it myself. I recognize that look. That's what you think of this loss discussion. I don't. I'm with you. Turn off your camera. I'm just it. I would be uh, one time in class. I was in my Greek literature class and I was reading the student newspaper in college during class. And the professor said, if you're going to read the newspaper, just leave. And my initial instinct was to get up and leave because I would much rather read the student newspaper than listen to this Greek literature lecture. And it is one of my great regrets that I instead just folded up the paper and put it down and stayed. I just, uh, believe it or not, knowing what a jerk I am now, I know it's hard for people to believe I didn't get out and storm out of a Greek literature class. I got a C plus on that class, maybe a C minus. Literally, how often has has this happened to you guys in your life where you are taking a test and you read a question on the test and you were like, I have no idea. I don't even recognize the words yeah. in the question. I can't even fake this. What is happening? That's what happened to me in that class. Stephen Means, have you lived through that? Yes, there was a lot. When you, in college, you get forced to take a lot of classes that you have nothing to do with what you want to do for a living. And a lot of those classes, that was the case for me where I just go, man, that's just... I don't remember studying that, but this seems right. So we're going we're gonna to try it. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. Or I just press C because when in doubt, press C. Greek mythology was also the worst class I took in college. It was like it was a it was like a Tuesday, Thursday, hour and a half lecture class. And you just showed up in a lecture hall and this guy just read Greek mythology basically for an hour and a half and drank out of his like big gulp. And then you left. And that was like that was the whole class. It was like no interaction, no nothing. And we only had three grades in the whole class. And 50% of your grade was this paper, like a midterm paper. And I didn't read the play until like the night before and just BS my way through the paper and got like a 95%. And that's why I passed the class. Look at you with the writing skills. How often in your college career did you guys return a book to sell back to the student bookstore that was still in the plastic wrap that was on the book when you bought it, that you went through a class... Now, most of the time I bought used books. So I remember specifically at least one time I got a new book. It was wrapped in plastic for some reason. And at the end of the class, I returned it in the plastic wrap. Anyone? Uh, I don't remember returning any in the plastic wrap. The problem was being an English major, not a journalism major, but an English major, you would have a lot of classes where you would have to get like several books, you know, several like paperback books or whatever that you'd read throughout the course of the semester. And then sometimes you would just maybe not read them. So here's the deal. Um, College books are expensive and college students are poor. So 
in our generation, we do this thing where we go to class for the first four weeks. And if that book, if we have not been assigned to read that book once, we're not buying that book. So I'm not spending money on something that the teacher is not going to use it. So you go to class first, see if the teacher's actually going to use the book. And usually the part that you do you end up using is on Quizlet. So you just go look up it, look at there. Any kids, list, any kids listening to this podcast, uh, work hard, stay in school. Otherwise, you can work you hard. It's just work smart as well. Oh, I like it. You don't have to work. Don't have to spend when you know you need groceries. Although, frankly, I think this podcast is actually like a, a cautionary tale. I'm not sure people are like, oh, I wish I could be like Stephen and Nathan and Doug. I think it's more like, <laughs> guys, if you don't do your homework, you're going to end up as podcast hosts. Literally anyone could be a podcast host. Aspire to more. Which recent loss could you accept the most? So you had to pick one of the five and you had to vote for it. It's not like you're rating all to various degrees. So I'll just read these because you guys have already done a lot of guessing. The one you could accept the most, Oklahoma 2017, the winner got 44%. Clemson 2019 was second with 30% and accepting it the most. Clemson 2016, the blowout on the national stage, 15%. Penn State 2016, the good team you feel like you should have won, that was 8%. And then the surprise loss, only 2%. And accepting a loss, Nathan, anything in that voting that surprised you or did that go as you would have, would have expected? I, I was going to vote for the near title close game. Just because at least then you're in, you're guaranteed that you at least made the playoffs. You can still say, hey, we were one of the four best teams in the country. We won up against, you know, you know, last year it happened to be that it came against Clemson, the team that lost. But if you have a really close loss to the team that then goes on and wins a national championship, it, there's some kind of, you know, transitive theory arguments you can make based on that as a fan. It's the, it's the loss that I feel like potentially wounds your bragging rights the least. That's got to be one of the big perks of being an Ohio State fan is that you get to kind of walk the earth with this, you know, you wear your Ohio State gear and people recognize you as being like attached to this winning machine. And this is that's the that's the loss that you still kind of get the most out of. That's the loss where you can go to the winning team. You only won because of something that's in neither one of our control. You, you can do that every so often with that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Um, all right. So which one did you least accept? And the winner, as we've discussed, no surprise here is the surprise loss. The one that is accepted the least that's 47%. So that's the one they can accept the least. Here's where I think it's interesting. So 30% said the Clemson 2019 loss was the one they could accept the most. 36% said it was the loss they could accept the least. So the Clemson 2019 loss finished second in both categories, hmm. which I found very interesting. So again, surprise loss, 47%. Clemson 2019, 36%. The blowout on the national stage, 16%. Like, hey, we got embarrassed on the national stage. And then the other two barely registered. Penn State 2016, a good team you should have beaten, 1%. The Oklahoma loss, zero. Only one person voted for it, 0%. So – that I thought was interesting that as much as, yes, we're not surprised that the one that, th that you could accept the least was the surprise loss. That made sense. There is, and Nathan, you kind of mentioned this, but I want to get Stephen, your thought on it first. There is a dichotomy with the Clemson 2019 loss. 
There's like some of the people who are like, you know what? You were right there. You're still a great team. And there are some people like, oh, you were right there. You were a great team. Does that make sense to you, Stephen, that that loss would finish second in both those votes? Yeah, it's a transition almost of coming to terms with a loss because you can live with it because you were really close, but also, and it's probably out of your control a little bit for why you lost, but also living with the fact that you lost and there's really nothing you could have done better to, to win the game a little bit is both a something you live with, but then also something that you can look at a, a glass half, half empty class glass half full type of situation of depends on how you want to look at it. Because it, some people, some fans might still be upset about the way the refs handled some of those calls in that game or the way it ended with the interception while some people have maybe they're still upset, but they started to move forward and look at this season as kind of the redemption story for that. So it just, Kind of, I think that answer changes depending on where you are in your grieving stages of a loss, especially on that type of stage. And again, Nathan, you kind of touched on this, right? Do you buy this dichotomy that fans are really are really divided on that type of Clemson 2019 loss? Yeah, I mean, I, that's, I kind of predicted that that's how the results would come out. That I thought it'd be pretty polarizing, just because you know it it what it means really differs based on your perspective. Did you? just did you go toe to toe with a really great team and that's just how it turns out or are you so loss averse that any you know anytime you're that close to a win it hurts twice as much to not be able to pull it off because of what it costs you you know you it, it in the case of the Clemson loss you're losing in the semifinals so the the chance to even play for a national championship slipped away and it was so close and it was right there and one or two plays decides it I, I guess I can I can see both ways I don't know which one I actually feel is more the correct emotion, if correct's the right word. I, I think both have merit. I do think in the end, and this is why, I mean, I really feel like I really tried to write this in this way after the Clemson loss last year. I think I would vote for the Clemson loss because I think of the five that, that, that would be the, the, the one that would be most difficult to deal with because of the five types of losses. I think this is the only type of loss where truly, really, actually, you thought you had a national championship team. Because if like Iowa and Purdue jump up and bite you, yeah, maybe you're flat, maybe something happens, but also maybe there's just a flaw there, right? I mean, if Penn State blocks the kick on you and runs it back, you know, maybe you shouldn't be letting that happen. Oklahoma just beat you. That's, of course, normal. You get blown out on the national stage. You're not good enough. This is the one loss where it's like you are like there's almost no dispute that you're good enough. You just didn't win, right? Like that's – that I think is the thing. And so if that's what is getting at you, I think, I think I understand voting for that as the one that you can sort of live with the least I did. We got some good responses. I couldn't go through all of them, but, but I wanted to use at least a couple, a couple responses here when people voted and then sent stuff in. This is Jack from Peoria from the three Oh nine Doug, you didn't give the option for the nuanced answer that I feel for games like the Clemson 2019 game. I don't know that I hate Clemson losses with the national title implications against good teams. I don't even know that I dislike it. I think the better explanation is it just gnaws at me. And I, I responded to Jack and said, gnaws is such a good word here. Still to this day, I think back to that game and the fumble reversal call, the targeting penalty, the J.K. Dobbins drop touchdown pass, it all gnaws at me. As a fan, I love watching the team win. And I love being thought of as the elite of the elite. So when they come so close 
and then lose in such a tough way. And then I have to watch Clemson get all the pub and Trevor Lawrence get all the love that Justin Fields should be getting. I just think back and it gnaws at me. That is my real answer for that choice. I thought that was a great text from Jack really explaining it. And again, that's why I kind of would kind of vote for that. Tyler B from the 937. One more on this. One thing to add that the survey doesn't really cover is why some of those losses hurt more. Purdue and Iowa hurt, and it sucked because you were the laughing stock for losing to far inferior teams. Clemson in 2016 and 2019 hurt probably the most because that's it. That's the end of the year. No way to redeem yourself the next week. In 2019 in particular, it felt like we were going to win it all, and it was snatched from us via a pick at the end, and it just felt like we were the better team the whole game making stupid mistakes. Also, the fact that the following year has been COVID-plagued, so all the good news you usually get, spring game, spring practice, we didn't get. I actually checked out from college football for a little bit because I was so shook from that loss. Sorry for the rant, Tyler B. And we like rants. We like rants on Buckeye Talk. You never have to apologize for ranting on Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk. That's, That's it. No more losing talk. By the way, I'd like to register this very quickly. Nathan, do you think Ohio State will lose to Indiana this week? No. Steven, do you think Ohio State will lose to Indiana this week? No. I do not think they will lose to Indiana this week. This is not, we are not like preemptively preparing you for the secret Friday picks pod where we all pick the Hoosiers. So we will get more into the specifics of this game on the Friday picks pod. It will be a Zoom live Thursday night. With our tech subscribers, it will be the pod on Friday morning. If you want to be a tech subscriber and get to join that Zoom, we like to see the people come in and hang out. Send the text to 614-350-3315, and you'll get all the info about how to sign up for that. 14-day free trial. You get the text right in your phone, news analysis, recruiting stuff, random surveys, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, all that kind of stuff. You get to ask us questions that we then talk about on the pod. It's a good time to do it. We appreciate everybody who has done it. And we're done talking about losing. We're going to talk about brackets. We're going to talk about freshman receivers. And we're going to do about 10 or 12 rapid fire coming up next on the big Thursday Buckeye Talk. All right, back on Buckeye Talk quickly. Not that quickly. We have time. I was not on the calls again today. You guys were. I actually like it again when I am a consumer because my information about what Ohio State coaches and players said on Wednesday is based on what Nathan texted. So that's how much I know. And there were at least two interesting things that came up, one regarding Zach Harrison, one regarding the freshman receivers. Let's start with Zach Harrison. And Nathan, I'll start with you. We thought he was going to be awesome, maybe, right? I mean, I had the thing in the spring or or, or the summer where a texter really made the case. And I was like, yeah, why do I have any doubts about Zach Harrison? I am back in. It's a sophomore five-star. He's on the path. He had a good solid freshman year. Why not expect a breakout? And I think we haven't quite seen a breakout. We, you guys got to talk to Zach on Wednesday. Just look, where are things, Nathan? And what should people be thinking as they watch Zach Harrison be fine There's nothing wrong with him. He's just kind of not playing as much as we thought and then maybe not doing quite as much as we thought. Well, I think those are two things to separate because what I think stood out to people was that first game against Nebraska where he was in the third rotation of defense. Like he was the last defensive end to get to play that day. And I think people were like, wait a second, what 
what's going on with that? Like we expect him to be maybe an all big 10 type player this year. And he's the last guy to get on the field. And obviously there's all sorts of speculation goes along with that. Was he late to practice one day and there was a punishment or something like that. And that's nothing that we've gotten any, I'm throwing that out purely like not even just about this situation, just saying any player in that situation, you always speculate about something like that. Was there an, an, uh, some other consequence that was playing out in that situation? And I don't have the snap counts in front of me, but that that has kind of, let me, let me jump in just real quick. Jonathan Cooper, 101, Tyler Friday and Tyreek Smith, both 87, Zach Harrison, 68, Javante Jean-Baptiste, 61. And by the way, in the last game, the Rutgers game, the other four guys all played at least 32 snaps. Zach Harrison played 25. So he's fourth overall, but he was fifth in the most recent game among those five primary defensive ends. Again, courtesy of our friends at 11 Warriors. Continue, Nathan. So that has been, I think, the thing that stands out more because when he actually does play, I feel like he's playing pretty well. The numbers there, I mean, when you consider the, the, the snaps, you said 60-something snaps. I mean, seven tackles, two and a half for loss, one and a half sacks, one pass breakup. If you were to extrapolate those, if you were to double all those things, if we were talking about right now that Zach Smith had three sacks and five tackles for loss and, like, a couple pass breakups, like, I don't think we'd be saying, like, oh, wow, like, three sacks through three games. That's not bad, right? Five tackles for loss through three games. So I think it, the performance when he plays is not necessarily a thing that is lacking. I think it is the snap count that is lacking. And he did not have a great answer for that. Greg Madison did not have any kind of great new answer for that. Ryan Day was asked the other day. It didn't have like some kind of a, a really insightful answer other than to say, we like him. We think he's a special player and he's going to keep getting better. But I think the implication there is that he's not in their estimation as good of an all around defensive end right now as Jonathan Cooper and Tyler Friday and uh, Tyreek Smith. And it, it was stark. It, it was weird. So just again, to, to put it all in context, 15 snaps for Zach Harrison in the Nebraska game was the fewest of the defensive ends. Jonathan Cooper, but for example, had 31, had double the snaps. The Penn State game, which is the game that mattered the most, Zach Harrison actually played a pretty decent amount of snaps. In the Penn State game, it was Cooper 35, Tyreek Smith and Zach Harrison 28, Tyler Friday 27, and then Javante Jean-Baptiste barely played at all, only played 10. So in the most important game, he actually was kind of in the normal mix. In the two other games, he's played the fewest. So it is a little weird to get your head around. Steven, did you sense any frustration from Zach Harrison? Again, we're trying to read a kid's mind. It's a good guy. It's a, he's a young player. He has time. There's not, we kind of went through this a little bit with like Nicholas Petit Frere sometimes of like the five star. This is actually a story idea. The second year five star that like everybody, Hey, especially when that five star plays a little bit as a first year player, right? Hey, second year five star, like, Hey, you know, nobody freaks out if a normal second year player is not playing a lot. But if you're a five-star, it's kind of like, hey, you're two, man. You're a five-star. And it just took Javon, it took Nicholas Petit Frere until year three. So it often takes offensive linemen longer than defensive ends. So it's not a perfect comparison. But I, I don't know, Stephen. Did you think Zach seemed frustrated at all? Or is this just another guy who's on the path? I think he was fine with it. But I do think that this is just me feeling this way, though. Jonathan Cooper coming back has, I think, messed up his playing time more than anybody else's because he's the young guy in this rotation. And he kind of pointed he, – he didn't say this exactly, but he just pointed out the fact that, yes, Jonathan Cooper's playing the most and he starts every game because he's the fifth-year senior captain, the OG, yada, yada, all that great stuff that you say good about somebody. But I do think that 
if Jonathan Cooper had been able to play last year, one, I don't know if, how much Zach Harrison would have played last year because he was second on the team in snaps last season, especially with Jonathan Cooper being out. Maybe Cooper would have been second, just like he was in 2018 when Nick Bosa went down. And so with Cooper and Young both gone, one graduating and one going to the NFL, maybe it is a little better of a distrib- distribution of the snaps where Zach Harrison is playing more. But because he's a second-year guy, even as a five-star who is still developing, and you've got some other three-year guys where it is kind of their time, their time to st- step up and show what they can do. And then you've got a fifth-year senior, Jonathan Cooper, who's been around a little bit. Maybe the 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 it's just he's getting the short end of the stick as the young guy who's got another year left here, and those other guys just have some things to prove. And that's probably a better question for Larry Johnson than Zach Harrison at this point. But maybe Jonathan Cooper coming back plays a role in this. I think that's I think that's a smart take on that. And and I don't if if it was just that Cooper was playing more than him, I don't think anybody would have that have an issue with it really. It's mm-hmm. just and that Tyreek Smith is being Tyreek Smith. Tyler Friday has 87 snaps and Zach Harrison has 68. And Tyler Friday is a solid player and is older than Zach Harrison. I don't know that anybody expected that coming into the year. If you just flip that and it was Cooper with 100 and then Tyreek Smith and Zach Harrison tied with 87, I think everybody would be fine. There really wouldn't be any questions. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't know that anybody's exactly sure. Like, huh, Tyler Friday playing 20 snaps more. It's like seven snaps a game more. It's like two series more a game than Zach Harrison. Huh? I'm a little surprised by that. I think that probably is, is just yeah. about it. You know, again, not the end of the world, no big deal, but I do think sometimes every time there's like a good thing, what a great story, Jonathan Cooper, you know, sits out and, and keeps the red shirt and he turns an injury into a positive and he's wearing the, the block O Jersey. And he's a great leader. And by the way, that guy is a top 50 national recruit too. great. Jonathan Cooper story. Nobody disputes that there's a domino effect. Every time there's a great story about a guy playing, there's somebody else who was like, Oh man, I thought I was going to play. And that is happening a little bit here and it's just happening. But I do think Nathan, what you brought up, the thing that's hardest for us from the outside is he seems good when he plays. So it's not like he's unproductive. It's like, man, he seems good. I just think if you're trying to win, maybe you would play him more. So that's the hardest thing about it. So here's, and I don't want this to become something that inundates our podcast. And I'm hesitant to bring it up because it'll be the second time this week. But I looked at the pro football focus numbers for the defensive ends. Because again, it gives us kind of an objective measurement from a third party that's maybe focusing more play by play on on how they grade these. Which defensive end for Ohio State has the highest grade right now? Probably Cooper. Tyreek Smith. Tyler Friday, 79.6. And and, and the top three guys, Friday and then Cooper. Tyler Friday would be in the top like 30 nationally, um, but none of them have enough snaps to qualify for the the minimums on that ranking. But Tyler Friday at 79.6. Jonathan Cooper, 78.1. Zach Harrison, 73.4. All those guys are solidly in the green. And then Jonathan Jean-Baptiste even at 69, kind of a – paler sickly green and then i can't remember somewhere down in the lower 60s mid 60s is tyreek smith he's actually got the lowest grade of the five he's the one of the five that i almost have the more questions about at this point of the season with with zach harrison it seems like again i think the performance is there and i it's one of those things where as an and someone who's analyzing the team since you don't get to watch every practice you assume that the reason he's playing fewer snaps is based on that but i don't understand why Tyreek Smith is also seems to be getting more opportunity and doing less with it. That's he's the guy that I think I'm, I'm not just casually seeing more from when I watch Ohio State football games. Yeah. I brought this up on a, uh, I think a former podcast the fact that I'd never know when he's out there. 
Tyree Smith. And he's playing a lot of snaps. I can just – there has not been a single snap out there where I went, oh, there's Tyree Smith. I've done – with the other – even with Javante Jean-Baptiste and his – only playing with 10 snaps in a game against Rutgers or against Penn State – I've always been able to tell when he was on the field. I've been able to tell with Tyler Friday, Jonathan Cooper, and Zach Harrison were on the field in their own way. Some louder than others, obviously, but you can always tell. I never, until they're running off the field and maybe having a line change, and I go, Tyreek Smith was just out there. He didn't do anything the entire time he was out there. So, you know, he's not really making any noise while he's there. But again, Gene Baptiste played the, the fewest snaps against Penn State, but I think he started against Rutgers. And seemed to yeah. play, and he played as much as any of those other three guys, other than than Harrison. So I, I suppose the other thing that we should say here is that if like if Jonathan or if Zach Harrison started or was the first defensive end off the sideline on Saturday, would not surprise me at all. Like yeah. I feel like it, I I don't have a great real read exactly on what they're doing with this rotation. It may be completely start over with a blank sheet week to week, and whoever has the best week of practice gets the most snaps. I, I don't know. Right. And it's just Jonathan Cooper and then one of those four every week. And I'm, I'm not so sure that Tyler Friday and Javante Jean-Baptiste didn't play more against Rutgers because they were from New Jersey, honestly. I think that honestly might have Could factored be. in yeah. some small percent. Um, the other thing here that we have to remember is that Larry Johnson, who is in charge of this, is arguably the greatest defensive line coach in college football history. So we'll trust him, <laughs> Coach Jay. We'll yeah. trust Coach Jay. Yeah, that's the other thing. That, no, that's what comes in here. It's like, yeah. do I really think that Larry Johnson it, like doesn't understand that Zach Harrison should be playing more? <laughs> like, I, you do have to at some point. Again, we can't just not analyze those things and have our own viewpoint of those things. But you have to at some point say, like, this guy's got a pretty good track record. I when, think he when, knows what he's doing. When it's reputation, it's you can still question. You can be intrigued by it but you can't ever just go hey why aren't you playing your best guys i'm gonna do the thing now which is i mean this is absolutely the worst thing that sports writers do usually it's talking not writing but i've i've there was a guy when i covered the phillies for four years there was a guy who actually like in the manager's office would like ask a question about like why the first baseman maybe didn't make a scoop on a low throw or something and he would say like you know i play first base in my recreational baseball <laughs> league <laughs> what like like would actually do it <laughs> would actually do it and terry francona i think at times would want to just like walk across the manager's office and murder him so i i have seen it happen and i have seen i think enough i think enough sports writers have enough awareness self-awareness to realize like it's a ridiculous thing to do so i only do this in jest can i make this clear don't clip this out and play it as like a little snippet on twitter and be like doug Maurice calls out larry johnson but i did coach the white soccer team that was our jersey color and that was really bad. <laughs> come on man come on <laughs> <laughs> go ahead <laughs> so I coached the soccer team like four years ago <laughs> and uh, sometimes it's hard to keep track of who's played and who hasn't played 
And so sometimes it's like, it'd be like, you know, like the middle of the second half and like Samantha would be like, coach, I haven't gotten to play yet. I'd be like, Oh my God, I forgot to put you in. So some, sometimes I wonder like what percent could that be at play that it's like, Oh, like I did, you know, I mean, I don't really mean it, but I think like in one game, maybe it's like, Oh, rotate this. Hey, well this, Hey, just coop here. Hey, that, you know what I mean? Like I I'm do just, wonder every now and then if that could happen. I'm just imagining a world where they're in the groove. Cause you know, he's not keeping track of the snaps on the sideline, but it's like the third quarter. And Zach Harrison's played like four snaps. He goes up to coach Johnson and goes, Hey coach Jay, I haven't played since the first quarter. He's like, Oh, I forgot you were here. Go on in Tyreek. Come back. Zach Harrison has like the 11 warriors snap count called up on his phone. <laughs> yeah. like, like the I, tracker, the tracker app. I only played 15 snaps against Nebraska. According to Dan hope. Uh, could I get in more? I don't actually think that happens, but I think like 5% that could happen like in a single game. Okay. I'm sure that I'm sure that there was a great analogy in there, but ever since you started talking, my mind's been trying to wrap itself around. Was it a soccer team of only white kids <laughs> or was it, or were you coaching a sport called white soccer? That was like somehow more is like a different version of soccer that only the, <laughs> the, the whitest version of soccer that you could imagine, and that which is and already a pretty white sport in this country. I feel like. And that's, they were that's like, worse. I know. That's what I'm right. trying to figure out. Is it was it coincidentally white or purposefully white? And they were like, they just right. went out in the community. They were like, listen, we need like 10 coaches who are just like the whitest people that you can find. How about that Doug guy? He seems really white. Well, but like, I was think, like in the in that that second concept, I can I can think a few coaches more qualified to coach a sport called white soccer. Than you, Doug Lamory. <laughs> it's like he loves the Backstreet Boys. He likes Chili's. I'm telling you, this is your guy. You're like the Vince Lombardi of white soccer, or like whatever the, the whatever the, the the random soccer coach, great soccer coach name here. He's the greatest of white, white soccer. soccer coach of all time. <laughs> it is rough when you're a kid and your jersey is white. It's like, hey, we're playing the purple team and the tur- tur- turquoise team and the maroon team, and it's like, what are you? And it's like, we are the absence of color. We are white. So that was our that was our team that year. Okay. Sorry about that. I say things that don't make sense sometimes. Okay, so the second thing that I actually want to talk about in football is what Brian Hartline had to say specifically about the freshman receivers on Wednesday because the other receivers, man, they're great. Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, they're good to go. Steven, did you get a vibe about what's up with the four freshman receivers from this first time we've talked to Brian Hartline in, in several weeks? Yeah, I think they're fine. I do think uh, – I texted you guys about this after we got done with Hardline as well. I, I think they're freshmen going through some growing pains and have had to learn some lessons on the field, especially – I think we found out why Julian Fleming hasn't necessarily been more a part of things. One is because he rotates with Chris Olave, and he's Chris Olave. But also, I think that dropped pass was I, – I, I said coachable. I, maybe coachable is not the right word, but the fact of – like as when we were talking about, you know, could Julian Fleming have more role as a number one receiver in the country? And it's he's still learning how to actually be a wide receiver and not just be the best athlete on the field like he was in Pennsylvania. I think he's still learning a lot of those things. And when Brian Hartline says, Yeah, he just needs to apply these techniques, and he hasn't really been doing that. And that drop is a prime reason why, and something I can show him, this is why you need to do this technique. 
this is him still learn that drop is him still learning how to be a wide receiver at a level where he's not the best athlete on the field all the time. Even can if it is an easy catch. Can I ask a very specific question just real quickly? Did Mookie Cooper come up? What's the Mookie Cooper discussion at the moment? No. There was none. He didn't come up specifically by name. Um, I mentioned him in what I wrote up about that and saying that like in a in a normal year, he'd probably be we'd be talking about is he redshirting this year, right? That's not really a factor this year because nobody's um, nobody's clock starts this year, but that's essentially, and I don't think that's a surprise. I think if, if we, no. if you had said, even if we were playing a 12 game season, I think if we got halfway through this season and he hadn't played, people would have been like, yeah, he missed his whole senior year. There's just not an opportunity, especially once we've seen how the targets and snaps have, have unfolded for Wilson and Olave to this point. Yeah. I just think he guy- would have gotten one of those non-conference games where, you know, they're going to win by 60 and that would have been the last we saw of him this year, just because of that. Just a kid caught up in an eligibility issue his senior year of high school and didn't get to play. And so, of course, he would be behind. I do think, and this is very hard, I think it's real, but I like it when kids maybe don't happen to come from a high school powerhouse, but they stay at their school. That they maybe, And there's nothing wrong with going to IMG or transferring to another school near your town that happens to be better at football. Lots of guys do that. There's, that's a great – go where you can give yourself the best opportunity to grow and learn and succeed, 1,000%. My daughter transferred high schools for, for not a sports reason, but because it was a better high school for her in trying to do what she wanted to do. Makes total sense. I do have an appreciation for kids who just come from a normal high school that's maybe not great at football, that maybe doesn't have as many resources, that just kind of is a regular high school with a football, with a football team, and they are like, by far – by far the best guy on the team. Like your school has never seen a guy like you. And I think Zach Harrison was an example of that. I saw Zach Harrison play one time in high school. It was like, look, there's Zach Harrison. And look, there's a bunch of five, seven kids who were lined up next to him on that defense. All credit to Zach Harrison for hanging in there with his team. But then maybe when you get to Ohio state, maybe you're a half step behind a guy who went to IMG or a guy who's from some powerhouse in Texas. Julian Fleming is a tough example because he went to a, a school that like was winning state titles in Pennsylvania all the time, but it was a little bit of a smaller school. It was a run first school that like had this system in place and like this legendary coach, but they were kind of like, Hey man, we have this awesome, we have the best receiver in the country. We better throw to him. And they did throw to him, but it wasn't the experience that Jackson Smith Najigba had catching a hundred passes a year at a high flying high school in Texas at a very high level of play. It's just different, but Steven, you're nodding, right? I mean, mm-hmm. is that some explanation here a little bit maybe that there is an effect sometimes if you just are from a football place where they're a little more advanced and you get prepared a little more to come to a place like Ohio State yeah I think and this is where the rankings thing gets interesting I think there's a difference between the best and most talented player and the most ready player and that's what you have with Jackson Smith the Jigba and Julian Fleming Jackson Smith the Jigba got his fifth star two months before he got to Ohio state, but the talent was clearly there, but also the opportunity with Garrett coming in a slot and then going back outside. Sometimes there's maybe more of an opportunity for him to get on the field right now than there is for Julian and those situations. But I do think that's a situation where Julian Fleming got targeted five times a game in high school. And he called all five because it, yeah, he played at a school where they were winning state championships, but he wasn't playing St. Joe's prep. You know, they were they were in a lower division. And so he, he manhandled. He was a man amongst boys 
while as Garrett Wilson is showing us, as Jackson Smith the Jigba is showing us, as Caleb Burton in 2022 is showing us, Jackson Smith the Jigba is just another really good player who plays wide receiver out of Texas. That's the norm there. And so he's a little more college ready because of the program and the state he's from. While with Julian, yeah, he's probably got the highest ceiling, which goes into how they come up with these rankings as well and why he was the number one guy. And he looks the part. But there are some technical things that come with being ready to play a sport at a certain level that he's still learning. And I think this is where the the absence of the spring also shows through Mm -hmm. a little bit. Like someone like him probably maybe needed that spring to help kind of close that gap a little bit, to help kind of, you know, ignite what talent he was coming in with already and push it up towards that Big Ten level. And they just didn't get to do that with him. And he's he's maybe playing catch up in a different way than someone like Jackson Smith and Jigba. And G. Scott might be in it. Obviously, his high school was in a better situation out in Washington, but he still might be in the same situation where that lack of a spring, that lack of being able to get some of the technical things that come with playing receiver, even if you are going up against Richard Sherman, because your dad knows him, I mean, they might just be a little step behind in a way they wouldn't have if they had a spring. Nathan, you mentioned catch up, playing catch up. We have a question in rapid fire about catch up. So I want you guys to be prepared for that. <laughs> We're going to quickly talk about first. A potential what might be up next in the nonsense bracket but we'll do that right after this break we're going to do the nonsense bracket little discussion what might be ahead and then rapid fire 10 or 12 great questions from our listeners that we'll have to zoom through you guys are listening to buckeye talk from cleveland.com all right back on buckeye talk sometimes our editing leaves a little bit to be desired but i think i did successfully cut out the part just now where i said I'm not going to make it. I have to pee and ran upstairs. So you guys didn't hear that part. Only Nathan and Steven heard it. And we're back to talk about brackets briefly. And then we're going to get to our rapid fire. We did the chain restaurant bracket. Texters loved it. We talked about it on the pod. I said to the texters, hey, give me an idea for the next nonsense bracket because I would like to continue doing them. Inundated. Inundated. I still haven't gone through them all. I was going through them. They were such good ideas that I said, there's no point in having an actual discussion about it on this podcast because I think we might have to do a whole separate podcast about all the possible ideas to do a, a bracket. And listen, next week's Illinois. I think we might be able to take one of the five podcasts and just talk about bracket ideas because they're so good. But I want to tease it briefly, tease it briefly with a couple ideas just that were mentioned and again, this is a great thing for the tech subscribers, but even if you don't subscribe to the text, we talk about it on the podcast. It's fun to talk about. Here were some of the ideas that were just floated, guys. Christmas movies from the 330. And I think the, the bracket is best when you can find 32. If you only can find 16, that's okay. But I think Christmas movies, right, in the holiday season, I think we could go down that road. Someone else in the 330 said desserts. Definitely need to do desserts. And I like that because it's a specific thing, but a wide range of things. You could even have regions, you know, you have like an ice cream region, you have a cake region, you could do stuff like that. I like that. Um, our friend uh, Billy Byler said from the 316, you could do a bracket of which chain has the best ice cream slash frozen dessert. The Dairy Queen Blizzard is a top seed, a Frosty's a solid three seed, a McFlurry might make the first four play in game, right? So that's. I like that idea. Very specific. I like thinking about seeds. Would we be able to find enough of those to have a full bracket? I don't know, but I like the idea. This was a good idea for the season from the 330. Food or drink to partake in while watching Buckeye football. It's like the best football snacks during a game. Very specific. This one I thought was excellent from the 419. Best gas station snack on a long road trip. Oh, that's 
That's a winner. Yeah. That opens up a lot. And That's I like tremendous. the idea of like a of like a three six game between like beef jerky and a grandma's oatmeal raisin cookie. Right. I mean, like you get some crossover, like head to head stuff there that I really like the idea of that. Um, sports movies. That was from the five one three. An oldie but a goodie, very applicable. We, we could go down that road. This was from the 561 said soft drink bracket. And again, Diet Coke would be the one seed, but we could go down that road. From the 585, they said soft drinks. They said crunchy snacks, like a chips, pretzels, combos kind of thing. And then they said just for Steven, pizza toppings. You could do pizza toppings. <laughs> so that I'm would never going to live that down. <laughs> no, you're not. This one I found very intriguing. From the 202, 80s and 90s sitcom bracket. I'm sure it's right in the wheelhouse of the text group, which is probably true because I imagine that there's a bunch of like random 40-year-old people who are in this text group. The sitcom that wins then becomes the one that Steven has to binge and enjoy, and he will give us periodic updates along the way. I like so this. The idea of like, a bunch of 30 and 40 year olds saying like, here's the bracket, this sitcom versus that sitcom, 80s and 90s, and the result is Steven must watch it. That is some thought into that. And I just want to say, if you think I am a stan for Chili's, wait until we do an 80s and 90s sitcom bracket and you see what I do for Perfect Strangers. I was going to say, I was just, I'm trying to imagine anything that ends up with Steven having to spend like three months watching Mr. Belvedere is I'm in. Yeah. I mean, it is Steven being like, this guy's from Mepos and he has a stuffed sheep. What is the deal here? I really like that idea. And so that is one that we could get, could definitely go down again. This is just a sprinkling of the ideas. And then this is one that had come up before. I can't remember somebody on Twitter at some point was like, Hey, maybe I'll do this. Should I do it? And I, or will it hurt people's feelings? And I think I said, it will hurt people's feelings and you absolutely should do it. Ohio state beat writer, beat writer, a 32 person Ohio state beat writer slash blogger bracket. And I, I say this now, listen, it would hurt feelings, but in a wonderful way. Oh my God. People's feelings would get hurt. And I'm okay with it because here's, what's going to happen. I guarantee this. And I don't, I I mean this, this is both a humble brag and a firm grasp of reality. I think from my standpoint, not to be a jerk, but I've been around a long time. If we do that, I think I should be a one seed. I don't know that I should be the overall one side seed. I think I should be a one seed. You and Tim were probably are probably of the one seeds, the one and number one, number one and number two. And let me say the this: rankings probably. I guarantee that I will be upset in the first round. I have <laughs> no doubt. There could be six votes or six thousand votes. I am going down in round one, and I want to do it. That doesn't doesn't make me shy away from it. I want to be Virginia. Who's my UMBC? Let me be Virginia. So that, just from the standpoint of hurting the feelings of sports writers, is very intriguing to me. So we will get into that more at a later date. And then because we love to do voting and surveys and brackets, 
I think on the podcast, maybe the three of us will come up with like the five, six, eight, ten ideas we like the best, and then we will text them out, and we'll let the tech subscribers actually pick in a vote what the next bracket will be. But we've got to keep the brackets going because I love them. The people love them. And again, as I've said many times, it's like, hey, uh, I have a question about Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. You guys want to answer that? And people are like, yeah, we'll answer that. And then I say, hey, I have a question. What's better, Red Lobster or Olive Garden? And people are like, I will murder you. Here's my 400-word explanation of my vote. And please let me vote on it 600 times. So people like surveys. Let's get to rapid fire. I'll say this, though, before we move on. If it has to do with me having to binge watch a show, it might skew the voting because people might start voting for things that have like 17 seasons. Oh, yeah. And that actually aren't that good. That Like they want to torture you. Mr. Yeah. Belvedere is like a really good example from Nathan of like making Steven watch Mr. Belvedere. And like, well, <laughs> oh, now I think I have, and I have to that just has to happen now regardless. Yeah. And then I have to finish a season and then every week I have to come with like a text giving my thoughts and my anecdotes upon, upon a season that yeah, let's not do that. Never mind. That's, I think you should have to binge Mr. Belvedere and you have to change your ringtone on your phone to the theme song for every number. So every time you get a text, it plays that theme song every time. And I, I just want to, will you lose your mind before the next Ohio state football season? I live on the second floor. I'm going to throw my phone out the window after two days of hearing that. Sometimes we talk about things that I can imagine ending up in HR. (laughs) (laughs) Where it's like, you guys, Stephen had to watch Mr. Belvedere. And Stephen's like, I want to quit my job. I don't want to do this. He's like, I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) And it's like, well, we didn't make him, but we told the podcast listeners and the tech subscribers that he'd do it. And it's like, he's a sports writer. It's like, yeah, and you had to watch Mr. Belvedere for the podcast. What don't you get? So I do wonder about that sometimes. Okay, let's do this. Rapid fire, guys. Remember, it's rapid. We've already gone an hour and a half on this podcast. It's been a good podcast, though. I hope you guys are listening to it at home and enjoying it. Again, drop the reviews. A couple good recent reviews. We always appreciate those. Make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash OSU. Ohio State, Indiana on Saturday. Friday picks preview pod. Postgame pod on Saturday. It'll be good to have a post-game preview, uh, post-game pod that's actually about Ohio State. You guys both going on Saturday? Home game at noon. You guys both going to be there? You both Yeah, that's my impression. Yeah. I'm not. And no parents are going either, and that's where our first question comes from. Ohio State and Franklin County announced this on Wednesday afternoon. They've been letting about 1,000 friends and family of the players and coaches in the stands for the game. And I think we need to lay this baseline down. I think a lot of people listening to this probably know this by now. But, Nathan, you wrote the news story about it. Ohio State sent out the release. Give us the quick baseline on what happened and why this move has been made. Yeah, so basically Franklin County uh, and the Columbus Health Department have instituted a – stay-at-home advisory, health advisory because of the coronavirus pandemic, that goes into effect at 6 p.m. Friday. So it's just another level of basically, unless you have to go out, don't go out. Don't go, don't, don't go out and assemble in public at all. And it's going to be a 28-day um, period uh, of this advisory. And I think in that, I think it was, if not for that, I think there would be families still at the game on Saturday and if it's not just football and it's not just Saturday they've they have um Ohio State has said there'll be no parents in attendance at any athletic events through the end of the calendar year through the end of 2020 they are going to revisit the policy before the Michigan game um for football 
but I would, you know, I would say it's unlikely. I would guess at this point, we'll see things are going to have to improve pretty significantly in the next month uh, because obviously they're not trending in the right direction. Um, But this also was the last, you know, I think we had all probably given up any hope of there being fans admitted to games at any point this year, even in small numbers. I that's completely off the table at this point. I do think there's a chance for a Michigan waiver for like a senior day, Michigan waiver, even just to get like the parents of the seniors in for that game. I mean, I I could see that like, this came down this week. They they decided they had to act now, and the, the action is nobody at all in the stands. And right. that's what happens now. Maybe you can work something out by the Michigan game. But there's we'll get into this a little bit more. We have to talk about this. It's not everybody's favorite subject. We have to talk about it a little bit. We have a couple questions about it. From the 614, and we got a couple questions along this, and let's remember it's rapid fire. We'll qu- try to keep it tight. From the 614, no offense, but why is the media allowed to attend the game still and not the parents of actual players? I actually find this to be a very reasonable question. And here's part of the answer. There were about a thousand friends and family allowed in the stands. And again, it's a great big stadium. That's that's one one hundredth of the seating capacity. So there's plenty of room to fit them in there. But there are a thousand. There are 40 media members allowed in at the moment. And you guys can talk about maybe the protocols or what has to go into that. I think 40 versus a thousand is part of it. And if you said, well, we'll still let in 40 parents. It's like, well, what are you doing now? If you said, we'll let in one person for each player or coach. I mean, I think at the moment, I think they had, it was all or nothing, right. That we had this plan for the thousand friends and family and they just had to go to nothing. It's a bigger group. You have to understand that, but the fans, the, the, the fans are outside. The media is inside. And frankly, if they said no media, I'd get it. Now, I do think the media also serves a purpose. If a kid takes a hit and you guys are watching through binoculars, does it look like he has a concussion? Did they put him back in the game? Yes, TV might cover all of that. But I do think there is a role that media on site can and do play in terms of informing the public and just sort of keeping an eye on things. That is what the media does a lot of times. We're not just there to watch football and eat snacks. So there's no more snacks. So I do think there is a role, but honestly, if they said, you know what, also no media, it's just going to be the TV broadcast. I don't know that we'd have a huge leg to stand on to be like, how dare you? It's like, listen, it's a pandemic. What are you going to do? If Justin Fields' parents can't be there, then neither can we. So you guys have, I have not been to a game all year. You guys have been going to games. Steven, where would you be on the idea if they booted the media for this? What would you think? I mean, I get it 100% because of what we're in right now, but I do think there is, I mean, we're there to do a job. We're not there to just enjoy watching somebody play football. And so there's just things that you get when you're actually at a game that you can't get from the outside, especially when you're looking at it from a perspective of, of you're working and it's not just you're there to watch an enjoying football game. You're, if a guy gets to the, your point, somebody gets hurt and they go into the tent. All right, we're keeping an eye on that to see if he comes out the tent to see if it's serious or not. We're seeing how – even if you're high up, you can see how people are interacting on the sidelines when they're not on the field, where coaches are, who's in the box, who's on, who's down on the field, all these different things. And so it's just a different way to look at the game for what we're trying to do and what we're there for. But at the same time, it is a pandemic, and I get it. Even if they cut it in half of the 40 that are there now, if they go, nope, we're just going down to 20, I would understand that as well. But we are there to serve a different purpose than to just you know, watch some people we love play football. I, I also With all do, due respect to the family members. 
No, I mean, they're more important to us, but I, they are more important than us. The parents are more important mm -hmm. than the media. But I actually do think almost like the fewer people there are there, it's almost like increases the need for the media because then you become sort of the eyes and ears for everybody. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, the only people that would be able to tell you what it's like in the stadium, and listen, you can watch it on view, but it's like it's just the announcers. There's not a single other person who can convey anything of what was taking place in that stadium where normally there's a hundred thousand people who can convey it, or at least there were a thousand friends and family who could convey it. So I'm not trying to overstate the, the, the importance of the media, but we are sort of there on behalf of everybody. So I do think there is a role, Nathan, where, where are you on sort of this media presence, parents presence? What's the best way to work this out? I think it's difficult if you're Ohio State, even under these circumstances, to be a public institution and tell the media they're shut out, even in a pandemic. I think that that is a that I don't think that looks good for them. I think that's a factor here. Um, and I, I agree with what you're saying, too, that that it's it's about. You know, they, they the Ohio State always benefits, even a place like Ohio State, even one where you have a huge TV audience, you have a big following. You don't necessarily need us writing stories to get people to be aware of Ohio State football. But I think you all you do gain something by every time you open your doors and you let the media in and you're kind of you're inviting that level of accountability. So I think that that, that that's all a factor here. Um, I, it does seem to me a little bit. I mean, we're they, you know, we have to do symptom checks where they do a temperature check when we get there. Um, we, we have to wear masks as we're walking everywhere in there. Um, we can, you know, we can, you can pull the mask down, to like eat and drink where at your seat, but we are very spread out. I would think that all those same things though would apply to those fans and they could be just as much spread out in the stadium. So, um, I, I, I definitely, I definitely understand why people, would question why you couldn't have both. Well, but part of it is, I mean, whether or not you question why you can't have both, they're not having one. So at the moment, it's like, well, if you're not having one, should you not have the other? Or yeah, the other way. But I guess that's, I guess that's a better way to say it. I, I totally understand someone who looks at this and says, if you can't have one, why can't you have the other who are sitting even closer in contact inside too? But, we're, we're inside in the press box as opposed to being outside. I think part of it is you, it's a group. You know, you, you sit with who you came with, but those people aren't technically social distancing. We're all six feet from each other inside of that booth. Even if, yes, we're inside, but it's sterile. They've got things going. There's hand sanitizer all over the place. They got those things on that you know, kind of sterilize the air. It's very cold in there. Um, and we're nowhere near. We're very spread out to the point that we're almost out, out, outside of just being indoors. We're probably a lot more social distant than people who are just sitting in the stands and getting up and high-fiving when good things happen and everything else. And it is easier to sort of police the medias, right? I mean, I don't, again, you yeah. guys are there. I'm not there. If you tried to get up and do something or take your mask off or do it, wouldn't, somebody would yell at you, right? I hope somebody would yell at you. Has anyone gotten yelled at yet? I don't, I don't remember anybody getting yelled at yet. Um, yeah, but no one's done it. But again, I'm, I'm, but I'm also it. not mingling around the press box the way I usually do. Like yeah, I go sit in my thing. seat and then I'm usually there unless I have to get up like you just did and, and run to the bathroom. Um, I do it in a little mm -hmm. bit with a little bit more dignity than, than you did. But, you know, unless I have to do that, I'm, I'm pretty much at my seat the whole game. When I stood up to go to the bathroom, I kind of had to wiggle out of my chair and I kind of put my crotch right in the camera. Did you guys make a joke about that, that my crotch was right in the camera? Um, 
No, just because they really weren't paying attention to your crotch. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about crotches a lot in this game. I'm not sure in this podcast. I'm not sure why. So listen, and I'm saying this, listen, who am I? I mean, I am the president of the Football Writers Association this year. If Ohio State said no media, I would not, like my instinct would not be like, how dare you? We demand to be in there. It'd Mm -hmm. be a safety issue. I mean, it would be a legitimate safety issue. And so like in the name of like safety or whatever accountability, I don't think they're trying to hide anything. So if they would go down that road, I get it. And this lead into question two, because it's not really about us. That's kind of about us sometimes. From the 440, do you think that at any point the Big Ten would shut down this season? We don't need to spend a lot of time on this. I just will, I'm going to say this in the context of the news about the parents and the family not being allowed there. I think anything that allows the game to still go on, everybody should be appreciative of the idea of the game is still going on. Everything else is a bonus right now. They are up again. There were 15 postponements or cancellations last, last week. I think it's up to 13 or 14 as we record this on Wednesday. Get the game played. They could play the game with no TV and say, here's the scores, right? I mean, that's you want to play. That's what the parents and the administrators and the coaches and everybody fought for. You want the guys to get to play. So, Everything else is gravy to me. And so I just, to me, it's not a discussion of, hey, how come they're playing without parents? Or how come, why is it? It's the two choices are play with nobody in the stands or don't play. Those are the choices at this point. And so would they shut down? I just think if you're living in a world where multiple games, many, many games are being canceled each week, if you got to a point where it was like, three or four or five Big Ten games were canceled one weekend. And the next weekend, three or four or five Big Ten games were canceled. I do think it would be possible the Big Ten would kind of say, what are we doing here? What are we, what is this? So I don't want to bog down in this because there's the speculation doesn't really do that much good. People are thinking about it. That was my reaction to the announcement of the crowd, though. Listen, man, they didn't play it all last week. All right, fine. Do whatever you got to do. At least they're still on track to play this week. So where are your heads, you two? Stephen first, just at all about could it be canceled? And honestly, like a 20-second answer is fine. Yeah, I'm not ruled, I'm not going to rule it out. But I think right now Wisconsin is the only team who's had multiple games canceled. And so unless you've been playing Wisconsin before last week, your game didn't get canceled. So I don't think it's headed that direction. I think you're right. I think right now – they're going to do everything in their power to play these games, even if that means sacrificing everything else around it. Maryland just, has not yet practiced this week, and there will be a decision on Thursday whether the Maryland-Michigan State yeah. game this week will be played. So we don't know about that yet. Go ahead, Nathan. I was about to say, yeah, I think that they're about to join Wisconsin as a team that's had multiple games canceled. But it has been like one at a time. It was Wisconsin's little blip, and it was Maryland's little blip. So – Yes, I think it's possible that this thing could still implode, but I think, it, like as Doug said, it's going to have to be more spread out. It's still been – it's a weird thing to say during a pandemic. The cancellations, though, the, the big effects on programs have still been very isolated. It would have to be more throughout the Big Ten, I think, before they would stop it at this point, almost to the point where, like, it would just be so obvious, right? Like, even people who now are, like, fiercely – against the shutdown would maybe have to step up and be like, hold on a second. Like seven teams aren't playing like, come on. All right. Next question from the four one nine. And this is the last one along these lines from the four one nine texted at what point in the week. Can I stop checking my phone once an hour to see if the game is canceled? Uh, and I responded to that texture and said, you can't, 
I, you have to check it every hour for the rest of the season. Sorry, that's unfortunate, but I, I don't think we're going to reach a point. The only way you stop checking is when they just cancel the whole season. So that's just where we are. That's just the reality of where we are. Well, you don't have to check your phone. You could just sign up for the text, 614-350-3315, and it'll come to you when that time, well, when that text happens. True. Well, this person, right. This person is a tech subscriber, obviously. Has, that's uh, true. How they said the thing. So you will get it. You don't have to check. We'll come to you. This person also said, and I had not thought of this, and I said last week that I thought if a Big Ten game, if a second Big Ten game had been canceled, that Ohio State would have been wanting to do what Cal and UCLA did last week when those were two Pac-12 teams that had games canceled because of what happened with other teams. Arizona State and Utah had COVID issues. So UCLA and Cal said, well, we each had our game canceled because of our opponent. We'll play. And they got it together in like less than 48 hours. This person said, do people realize how close we were to playing Michigan last weekend if Wisconsin still had COVID issues? Because that would have been the most likely thing that Wisconsin had two weeks canceled. If it would have gone into a third week, they played Michigan last week. Pure speculation. Ryan Day made it clear that he wanted to play. That's not speculation. Would they have done something with Ohio State, Michigan? last minute to have those two teams play either because it's a pandemic. What are you going to do? We'll take every game we can get. This is the year that Ohio state Michigan played twice. It's crazy. Or listen, man, December 19th or, or not December 19th, December 12th is a long way off. Take it while we can get it. Can you wrap your head around it? Nathan, the idea of it. I, I can wrap my head around it. I guess just though, I mean, all the people who were like, aghast at the idea of not playing Michigan in the last week of the season because of the tradition that you lose. Wouldn't you also have to be aghast at the concept of playing them twice in one season? Um, I think the logic applies in both cases that you just do whatever you can to, to that gets you through the season the best. Um, so I'm, I'm curious how the fan base as a whole would have reacted to that. I think they wouldn't have mind it because I think now, right now, Ohio State looks at it, Ohio State fans look at it and say, oh, we get to beat Michigan twice in a year instead of just once like we'll take that but i don't know i don't know how, how would they have felt about that yeah hey harbaugh you want michigan you want ohio state twice this year jim you want him twice this year he'd be like i'm done now don well, brown's taking over and i think that's the interesting thing I, um I, espn's heather dennett i think was the first one i saw report this about that the big 10 did eventually put something in place where that was an option we didn't necessarily know that going into last week um what do you so, mean? but be specific. What are you talking about? What was it that um, that there is a mechanism where I think that that is allowed if they know it early enough in the week? That what that the Big Ten, a Big Ten team that, could that be two Big to Ten play teams. Yeah, if if team if if there's two cancellations, then the two teams that aren't affected can play each other. Would that if there? But would that move up a game that was already scheduled, or would that just be the? See, first I don't know all games? of the specific. I don't know all no, of those. It, specific. it can't be that you move a game already scheduled because yeah. there's only like four games left scheduled. It's got to be you just yeah. let them play. But I think it has to also be a mutually agreed upon thing. Yeah. And it has to be known by a certain point of the week. So like if the Wisconsin thing is dragging later in the week and they don't know if they can play yet, I don't know that Michigan would give up the chance to play Wisconsin in order to play Ohio State a second time in order in, early enough in the week in order for that game to have gotten played. And to be optimistic, go ahead. It would ensure that the game got played. If, if 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 it was two times, but the season gets canceled, I mean, at least the Ohio State-Michigan game was played that year. And it would open it up. And then if you wanted to play, you know, maybe Ohio State-Michigan 
maybe Wisconsin could play Michigan. Like, you know what I mean? You could move some stuff around and reshape the schedule so that you don't miss the game. You know, I don't know. You could have done some stuff. Uh, I was very much on like trying to preserve some tradition. And when they were redoing schedules and stuff, I think the boat is, you know, you're bailing water right here. So I think we are in like, play it, play it, play it. If they play twice, great. Like what's the worst case scenario? Ohio state, Michigan play zero times. What's the best case scenario. They play once on the day they're supposed to play it. All right. Well, it, playing what's better than playing zero times playing right now. And then if it's a second time, if you move the second thing, that's better than zero. And I really think they might've gone down that road. I was very much on the idea of when that, Ohio, and I think we have to be careful of this when that Ohio state announcement came out, it was not that Ohio state's not playing Saturday. It was that Ohio state's not playing Maryland Saturday. And you have to wait, just wait one more day. See if somebody else cancels and a game might be back on. I had not thought about it in the Michigan context though. I love this. I love when we have the longtime listeners from the 615. We need Nathan and Steven's take on the age old question. Should ketchup be stored in the refrigerator or in the pantry? Side note. And I do not remember this at all. The conversation a couple years ago about ketchup had me stop listening because all they talked about was ketchup. So at some point on Buckeye Talk, we had such an impassioned ketchup discussion that we drove this future tech subscriber away from the podcast. And now they say, and yet here I am listening five days a week. So we got you back. The ketchup pushes you away. The football, the other nonsense brings you back. Thanks for the infotainment and keep up the good work. So ketchup, ketchup is very important to me. I have very specific ideas about ketchup. Nathan, where are you? on using ketchup and where do you store ketchup? I've never in, lived in a house where we didn't put the ke- an open bottle of ketchup in the fridge. But the more I thought mm-hmm. about it, I was like, I think at like restaurants and stuff, they very commonly don't put it in the fridge, right? Like they just like maybe gather them up at the end of the night and they, they keep them somewhere, but like they off the tables, but like they don't, I think obviously obviously often put them in the fridge or always put them in the fridge. So, um, but it's interesting. This came, this topic came crashing down into my life because last night I used ketchup, which I actually don't use that much, but I used ketchup. And then this morning I got up and realized I had left it out overnight. So then I had this like dilemma, like, did I just ruin the ketchup? But it sounds like I didn't. Did you throw it away or no? I haven't yet. It's still out on the counter. Yeah, I would I say I haven't remedied this situation. It I, was an old bottle of ketchup, though. It's like it's like it may have been like past the best if used by and we have a full bottle. So I'm I'm like I'm I'm on the fence. Like, do I just ditch this bottle of ketchup now? I would say I think some of the best ketchup is the McDonald's ketchup when you get it out of the gun that it's not the packets, but you get out of the gun. That's that's just like a big bag of, of ketchup that just yeah. sits out all the time unrefrigerated so i think you make a good point clearly it does not need to be refrigerated but steven is your preference to refrigerate it steven or i'm can i bet now can my oh actually i was gonna say my bet is steven does not have ketchup in his apartment but then actually i've eaten with steven on the road steven does enjoy a hamburger i don't know if he puts ketchup on his hamburger though steven where are you on this i do i love ketchup our ketchup is in the refrigerator i don't really know why we, but I've always lived in a house that has it in the refrigerator. I think a in, more interesting comp- conversation maybe is also, are you a dipper or a spreader with your ketchup? Because I like to spread my ketchup all over my fries and my 
my friends think I'm weird because I don't I don't just dip it. So you'll you have the well, you put the a pile of fries and then you just like dump the ketchup yep, or squeeze it all it over out. the place. Because mm-hmm. I like to spread, I'll spread the ketchup on the hamburger and then also dip the hamburger in the ketchup. So I'm a spreader and a dipper, Buckeye talk. Mm. Because ketchup, especially McDonald's ketchup, I think is 96% sugar. It is very little tomato, all sugar. But I guess my question is, if you don't put ketchup in the refrigerator, what are the shelves on the door for? I guess pickles. Yeah, I mean, other things, because that's the thing, like, if you think about it, like, many times like when when i had a an office that i worked at with like a desk at the office you would get like takeout and stuff and you would accumulate these ketchup packets over time and they would just sit in a drawer right you don't go put them in the fridge they're just in the drawer at your desk and I like once in, in a while fridge. yeah once in a while you'd find one at the bottom of the drawer that if you squeeze it out it would just be like black and you'd be like well i'm not going to I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to dip my fries in that. <laughs> but that, that was like an extreme example. That have to be like the bottom of the drawer. Usually you could pull a, a packet out that had been there for like a year and you squeeze it out and it's fine. Yeah. I, I actually have not even heard this discussion that the, the texter said it's the age old discussion of, do you put it in the fridge or the pantry? I've never heard of putting it in the pantry. I assumed as both you guys did that everybody puts it in the fridge and I have both a bottle of ketchup and like 17 McDonald's packets in my fridge door right now. Because, you know, I, why am I going to throw that? I'm not going to throw it away. It's free ketchup. So I have the packets in there, and I use both, and they're all cold. That's rapid fire. Guys, we got to be quick. If it's a football question, no more than 30 seconds on the answer. If it's a condiment question, feel free to go nine minutes. <laughs> Speaking of things that are almost as important as ketchup, let's talk about the ceiling of the Ohio State offense from the 5 Hypothetically, if this defense is 2018 bad, and I don't think it is, that's the texter saying that, does this offense have a ceiling high enough to make it to the playoff and have a puncher shot versus Bama and Clemson? If the defense is bad, Nathan, and you have been the one who has from the start been a little more worried about the defense, is the offense good enough to overcome it if it is bad? Yes, good enough to make the playoffs, and yes, good enough to have a puncher's chance against Clemson and Alabama, because especially in the case of Alabama and then whoever makes it in as a, a, a four seed, those teams have had some of their own defensive issues as well. Uh, but I will say this defense does have to keep improving over the second half, which just means keeping the trajectory it already has, I think. And if it if it if it doesn't keep improving, then I do think it is more susceptible, even either in a Wisconsin matchup or whatever in the Big Ten Championship or to have a, a not favorable outcome in the playoffs. Steven, can the offense overcome any defensive shortcomings? Yeah, so Ohio State's averaging 23 point, points a game allowed. That's what Ohio State's doing. Alabama's giving up 22 points per game, and Clemson's giving up 19 and a half per game. I think that 2018 defense, as bad as it was at times, there were still some guys who could get some key stops when they needed to get a key stop. I mean, Chase Young and Draymond Jones are still on that defensive line there. This defense isn't as bad as that defense was, and I still think there are some guys on this defense who can get some key stops when they need to have them, and that's what I think a game against Clemson or Alabama is going to come down to. So, yeah, the, and then the offense is, is amazing. Yeah, so, it's, yeah. An off, it's an offense question, though. We're saying the defense sucks. If the defense yeah. sucks, I said this is the most screwed-up evaluation of any Ohio State team I've covered. I just think Justin Fields can do anything. If someone said, yeah. what if there was a rule that Ohio State could only play six people on defense, what would Ohio State do? I'd be like, I don't know. Justin Fields would score every play. 
if they said, if there was a rule that just the quarterback had to throw with his opposite hand, what would happen? I'd be like, I don't know. Justin Fields would be fine. They said, what would happen if there was a rule that Ohio State's opponent got a 28-point head start in every playoff game? I'd say, I don't know. I guess Justin Fields would just have to score 28 points faster. Like, I just think he can make up for anything. So my whatever question, we can do this for the texts. We can do a bracket of the most ridiculous, the most, the 32 most ridiculous questions that you could ask that the answer would be Ohio State has Justin Fields, it's fine. Like I just, there's never been an offense at Ohio State that has a ceiling like this because of those three guys. So whatever your question is, my answer is yes, they can make up for it because I don't know if anybody can stop Justin Fields, Garrett Wilson, and Chris Olave. And even the times when you feel like they have been stopped, it's like, hey, they had a couple drives at the start of the Rutgers game in the second half, right, where they didn't score on two drives and it threw them off. They also didn't have to score then, right? It wasn't like, oh, we've got to. So it was like, okay, well, you have a holding. They just go for it on every fourth down. They don't mess around with trying to establish the run. They just throw it to Olave 25 times and Wilson 25 times, and they go and tell me that won't be enough. I'm going to believe that's probably enough until proven otherwise. It's crazy. There's no analysis. He's that good. He's that good. So, yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. From the 727, it sounds like all of you are optimistic. After three games and seeing other teams, how much does this season feel like 2018? Nathan wasn't here for 2018. Steven came in in the middle of 2018. Just let me, this is my analogy on this. In 2018, it was an offense-driven team, obviously. We talk about the defense all the time. It was an offense-driven team. In that moment, I think we all thought to ourselves, wow, look at this Dwayne Haskins, Ryan Day offense. We've never seen anything like this. As it turns out, that was the base model. It was a new, it was a new version of the car. It was a new model, but it was the base model. And now they have the model, but they have all the extra stuff. So it doesn't feel like 2018 to me because Dwayne was great, but Justin's better than Dwayne. And we thought they had a plan back then. This plan's even better. And I get it. They don't have JK. I get it. There's some stuff. And the defense is not as bad as 2018. Greg Shiano and Bill Davis are gone. The defense is not as bad. They might have had more players. They might have had more individual stars back then. But the plan on the defense is better this year. Justin Fields is next level. And so I think we have to keep that in mind. Steven, is that is that a crazy analogy? Or is that where people should be? Every time you bring up 2018, it's like Dwayne was good. Yeah, Dwayne was good. But man, this is Justin Fields. I like that you called it the base model and it's because it's the first time you've ever seen it. And Justin Fields is the evolution of that because he can also run the ball and his arm talent is ridiculous. And it's also one of the reasons why I'm so high on Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave as well, but Justin Fields is the best quarterback Ohio State's ever had talent wise. I think Garrett Wilson might be the most important wide receiver commit Ohio State has ever had because of everything he meant as far as where this passing game was headed and every type of commit from why, as far as wide receivers are concerned that have come after him. The only other five-star they had before him was Jalen Marshall, and that was a different offense. 
So I, I just think this offense is in a whole different stratosphere than what that already was, and that was new to everybody. People also need to just be careful about – I mean, if it's if not for the second half of the Rutgers game, a game they were up 35-3, to three, like how much are people still bringing up 2018 at this point on, on the defensive side of the ball? I mean, that wasn't just a defense that had some issues. That was like a historically bad defense, and I don't think this team qualifies yet. I don't think you can even really kind of sound the alarms on that yet audible yawn from nathan baird in the middle of that answer audible yawn <laughs> i was in the system at like two o'clock in the morning last night and the story that you published on wednesday morning was not yet written how late were you up well i it's not usually a matter of how late am i up it's how late did i finish the thing after falling asleep oh you fell asleep That's in the middle of writing is it it's not usually in the middle of writing. It's like, I'll write, and then I'll get distracted by something and have to come back to it. Um, I'm trying to avoid that tonight, actually. <laughs> but um, that did happen last night, yes. No, I get that. There's definitely a 2.30 a.m. alarm sometimes that you have to set. I saw someone tweet this. Some writer tweeted it. Or someone tweeted a quote from a writer. It was a writer who said, if you decide to be a writer, it's deciding to feel like you have homework every day for the rest of your life. Yes. Which I thought was like so realistic. It made me want to cry and quit my job. So anyway, but podcasting, I mean, that's nothing. That's just yammer from the six one nine question seven. We'll speed it up. Doug's been talking a decent amount about Brian day's ruthlessness versus urban versus urban Myers ruthlessness. I'm wondering if we see that ruthlessness materialize into making a change at running back. Could this game versus Indiana be a bit of a last shot for Trey Sermon? I asked I got you guys a while back if you thought uh, the short season could lead to a shorter leash on players. After this game, the season is more than half over, and I think if they're going to make a change, then it should be made ASAP. I guess we'll get a glimpse of how ruthless day can be from the 619. Nathan, are you feeling that? It, could that be what this is, sort of a last chance for Trey Sermon to show what he can do? Well, I don't know what they mean by make a change. I mean, again, there's already sort of a discrepancy in the carries that Teague and Sermon are getting. Teague is getting the bigger share of the carries. The thing I would remind people about is Teague is coming off a significant injury. You don't know when guys are going to get banged up again. I think, and especially if, it's a, if a situation arises where – they don't have to salt the game away the way they kind of did against Penn state by going heavy with Teague. I guess I just don't see the drawback of keep putting sermon out there to try to figure out what gets him going. Because you, if Teague ever goes down at some point, you have to rely on sermon. I, I, I don't, I have not bought into the, the steel chambers flashes that we've seen enough to think that he's going to come in and take over and be like some kind of lead back. You're going to sermon is going to have to be some portion of this offense. I think, all the way through. Now, there's a you could decide how much of its role he has to have, but I think trying to figure out ways to get him going in games has a merit still at this point of the season. So well, I, I do think there's a difference between somebody being a spellback and then being a part of the normal running back rotation. And I do think this is kind of the week where Trey Sermon maybe decide for himself whether or not he deserves to be. It should this this should be a rotation or should he just be Master T spellback? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear. I mean, J.K. Dobbins last year was a starting running back, and Master Teague mm-hmm. only played when there was a blowout. It's like nobody had any question about that. You could go that route, but Nathan, it feels like your answer or your view on this is at least somewhat altered or changed by the fact that Master Teague had a significant injury, and that would make you a, a somewhat loath to sort of give up on the next guy because 
you wonder about the first guy staying healthy the whole year. Is that true? A little bit. Um, and, but also I think I just haven't given up on, and I was like you, I, I think I had tempered expectations on Trey Sermon, not expecting him to come in and be, um, you know, the best running back in the big 10 or anything like that. But I also think that it, it may just be too early to completely give up on Trey Sermon that there may be something he can still build towards this year. Um, it is a new system for him. He is coming off his own injury, but obviously time is short. He's got to kind of figure something out soon. And I think there are some things that he can control as far as how he runs the ball that need to be corrected and need to be corrected quickly. All right, next one. I'll mostly handle this one. From the 4-4-3, if Luke Fickle took over for Urban Meyer instead of Jim Trestle, would Ohio State still be in the elite tier of college football? So the issue is that Urban took Ohio State's recruiting to the next level. I don't think Luke would have done that. That's not a shot at Luke. It's an acknowledgement of what Urban Meyer is as a recruiter specifically. And Ryan Day inherited that idea. So that's what changed. They went from a Midwest recruiting team to a national recruiting team. And I don't think that Luke Fickle, as a first-time head coach who's lived his entire life in the state of Ohio, would have all of a sudden changed and made Ohio state go out and start getting top 50, top 100 national kids from Texas and California and Georgia and Florida. And the urban Meyer did. And that's what changed them. So I think Luke fickle would have been more of the same of Jim Trestle. Luke fickle's really good, but I think it, I think it's weird a little bit. Ryan day has been so good. I don't actually, I don't really believe this. I don't know that anybody underestimates urban Meyer or the impact he had here. I, I don't think people do that, but the recruiting was the biggest thing. And until you brought in a national coach who took you national recruiting, that was a foundational game changer for this program. And there's been a lot of discussion of Luke Fickle. I think Luke Fickle is a really good head coach. I don't think he's going to be the coach at Michigan. I think he'd be a really good candidate at Penn State if James Franklin left. I think it makes a lot of sense, and we probably can have a discussion about Luke Fickle more in general. If, he's, if Luke's turning down Michigan State, what's he waiting for? Because, like, I, you know. As some other people says like, Hey, look fickle for South Carolina. It's like, he's not turning down Michigan state and going to South Carolina. You're crazy. I mean, like Luke is a Midwest guy. And if you're turning down Michigan state, what's better than that for real Ohio state is, but are you waiting on that? And then you're probably not going to Michigan because it was tear your soul apart. So what else is there? Honestly, what else is there? It's Penn state and Notre Dame. So is Luke fickle waiting on Penn state or Notre Dame? I think it'd be great for Penn State, but if you, if Penn State says we've got to recruit with Ohio State, that's our only choice. We have to recruit at Ohio State's level. Then I don't think Luke's your guy because Luke's more trestle than Urban, and that's great. Urban's rare, and Ryan inherited Urban's style of recruiting. Ryan Day, out of nowhere, if Ryan Day had been hired to replace Jim Trestle, Ryan Day would not have come up here, come in here, and been like, "We got to go get Von Bell." We got to go get Jeff Okuda, said Ryan Day, who's from New Hampshire and has never been a college head coach before. Urban did that. So that's the difference. So would Ohio State sort of be, I think Ohio State could be Oklahoma. I think Ohio State could be a half tier below where it is right now. But if Luke had taken over for Urban, if Urban Meyer had never been the coach here, if Urban Meyer had never made Ohio State an absolute, no doubt about it, and Coop did it too. But what Urban did was he made him a national recruiting power while retaining the Ohio flavor and the Ohio kids, even though there were fewer Ohio kids. Urban's the, I mean, he's as good of a recruiter. It might be a better recruiter than Saban. He's as good of a recruiter as you'll ever see in college football. And he brought that to Ohio State. He changed Ohio State. And I don't think Luke would have been able to do that. So that's the issue. Everything else, Luke, I think, can establish a culture. 
I think Luke can motivate. I think Luke can strategize. I think Luke can recruit in the Midwest, but Urban is next level. And I don't think anybody needs a reminder of that, but every now and then, maybe it's not such a bad thing to offer it. Question number nine, and I'm almost tempted to save this for a separate podcast. Nathan, you are allowed to say, save it when I ask this question, if it's too good, because you are working on some quarterback stuff here. And also you're very tired from the 614. Graham Mertz seems to be the real deal. This is Wisconsin quarterback Graham Mertz. Is there a non-Ohio State quarterback, current or past, who you think is similar in quality? How long has it been in the Big Ten since there has been a quarterback of his potential not at Ohio State? My instinct is to save that. My instinct is to save it too, mostly because I meant to go look up some comps for him and I didn't get around to it. I looked up some comps for him and I think we should save it. Let's save it. I think we have a good – we have some quarterback stuff we want to do. Penix this week, Michael Penix this week is a good time to do quarterback stuff. But there's also a little bit maybe of a quarterback transformation happening in the Big Ten that Nathan has been sticking his toe in the water um, in, in writing about this. I think we're going to – he's going to get to that at some point. I think this is a nice little conversation as we can look for some historical context on this. So we're going to save that. Great question. That's a, that's a compliment. Your question is so good. We couldn't answer it in five minutes from the six, one, four last two. We'd love to get your guys thoughts on the story unfolding at LSU. It sure seems like the type of story that would get a ton of media attention at a non sec school, especially if it was Ohio state, the Zach Smith saga certainly got a ton more attention than this. This is from our guy, Alan kitchen. So the story they're talking about is USA today has written a story with some detailed allegations of some sexual misconduct uh, in the last several years among multiple LSU players under the, uh, the reign of Ed Orgeron. And I agree that it seems like it's kind of slipping under the radar a bit. And I'm not exactly sure why Steven, my instinct, we're not experts on this story. We're not experts on this story, but we can have a perception of how it's being perceived. I think it's pandemic related that it's helping slip under the, the, you know, slip under notice a little bit, Stephen. What, what what do you think is is the issue here? I think there is a lot happening in 2020, and so it's all about where you want to put your focus on. Pandemic. We had an election. There have been some social justice stuff. It's just 2020 has been a lot, and so I think you. It's. I don't know if it's. It's probably not getting the attention because when Ohio State was also going through it with the Zach Smith stuff, it was the only thing going on in the summer right before they went to big. 10 media days and so right now there's so there's been so much stuff going on that it's been able to I wouldn't say slip under the radar it's just if that's not one of the four or five things you're paying attention to you think it's not getting the attention it needs yeah I mean you've got the election and all the stuff that's going on with that you've got COVID-19 stuff happening and happening to college football which is still as as our texters have been mentioning kind of a day-to-day thing that they're dealing with as fans and then there are just those specific things about this case. The way the Zach Smith story came out was very different. You know, Brett McMurphy and how that all unfolded and like having a big confrontation at Big Ten Media Day with a bunch of other reporters in the room. And, and the fact that Urban, you know, Ed Orgeron, I know, just won a national championship. But Zach Smith, or I mean, uh, Urban Meyer is a bigger name than Ed Orgeron, too. And I think that's also a factor here. And the fact that the the Ohio State media contingent is gigantic and LSU's is pretty big, but I don't think it's quite the same scope. I do think 
it probably should be getting more national attention than it is. It's the team that won the national championship last year. And I do think Coach O, by the way, Coach O is rode the folksy, weird voice kind of thing for a while. Time for Coach O to take some responsibility here. He's been a little, he's, I think, a little more than lax with some of the COVID stuff. And this is not acceptable. And just to, to you know, again, if you haven't heard a ton about this, and, and maybe you haven't, I'm reading from the latest USA Today story. A USA Today investigation published Monday found that officials in the university's athletic department and broader administration repeatedly have ignored complaints against abusers, denied victims' requests for protection, and subjected them to further harm by known perpetrators. So this had specific allegations against specific players, specific recent LSU football players. At least nine football players have been reported to police for accusations of sexual misconduct and dating violence since coach Ed Orgeron took over the team four years ago. Records show. The university is known to have disciplined only two of them, and that is not great. And I do think Coach O gets a little bit of a pass because he talks like this. And I think it's a joke. And I think if there's a lot of other places where if you were the defending national champion, and this allegation came out. It's not old. It's about the current coach, the current administration. I think there would be more talk than there is. And I think it's not great. I think it's pandemic related primarily. But if there is anybody saying like, what's up with this? I think you're right to, to try to you know, bring that up. There is stuff happening on campus. Again, reading from the most recent USA Today story, Louisiana State University administrators and coaches are under fire after USA Today investigation found that systemic mishandling of sexual misconduct and dating violence complaints by the school. The LSU interim president released a statement Monday acknowledging the university's failings and promising a review of its policies. Representatives from more than a dozen LSU student groups called for the resignation of anyone who has mishandled Title IX complaints. There has been an outcry from faculty and students on social media, and a protest is scheduled Friday afternoon for LSU to take responsibility for covering up sexual assault cases. Public reaction, media reaction, fan reaction, perception matters. What matters more is how the university handles it. I will say this seems like more widespread and more serious than what happened with Zach Smith and Urban Meyer at Ohio State. That is not to say that Zach Smith's situation was not serious. Zach Smith's situation did not involve students at Ohio State. It was a personal situation that did have it, things that were related to Ohio State. Urban Meyer and Gene Smith, I think, did fall down in their oversight of him. But this is multiple, multiple, multiple players accused of things and getting uh, seemingly no having no issues about it under Coach O's watch. So Coach O can't get a lot off the hook here. I don't know what's going on. But I do think if Coach O gets let off the hook. It's going to talk like this and everybody thinks he's a good guy they like to talk to. I've written two books about him. So why I don't ever want to write a book about a coach or a player. Because you write a book about him. And just when you write a book about what a great guy they are, the players relate to Coach O. And then this stuff happens. And it's like, oh, yeah, that. Oh, yeah. It's not so funny. When you got player allegations of sexual assault against multiple. It's not funny to do the voice anymore. Though No, that was actually kind of funny, unfortunately. But, but I know what point you're trying to make. 
So like at the moment, this is my perception and it's a podcast and I'm a columnist. I can say what I want. My perception is that Coach O's a meathead that I don't trust to run a program right now. Now, maybe that's not fair, but I'm not sure that I've read. I'm not a national college football writer. I'm not sure I've read 50 columns this week about how Coach O's a meathead who shouldn't be trusted to run a college football program anymore. If you find any columns that say that, send them my way. Text them to me. Tweet them at me. No, no, text I haven't seen it. Sign up for the text and then text about it. Sign up for $4 a month for the right to send me columns criticizing Coach O, losing control of his program. Joe Burrow, come down here and lead us to a national championship. And uh, I don't know what those boys do. Boys get It's not funny, Coach O. So I do, and I think the media gets in bed with some guys. I'll say it. I don't care. He's a good guy. Everybody loves him. When it's time to call somebody out, call somebody out. That's a fun way to end the podcast. Let's end the podcast with this. Heck of a segue. Speaking, speaking of speaking of ridiculous characters, uh, <laughs> this is going to be the last question for the podcast today. This is all for Stephen and Nathan and Doug. This is from Coach O in the four one nine. If you could be a cereal box character, who would you be? I said Count Chocula. I enjoy the chocolate flakes wearing a cape with the fangs. That's what Coach O want to be. Coach Co want to be Count Chocula. Maybe you want to be Boo Berry. Nathan, you want to be Boo Berry or you want to be that pink Frankenstein guy? Maybe Tony the Tiger. Yes. Captain Crunch. Coach O likes a Captain Crunch too. Captain Crunch, he's like the boss, like Coach O is running a program. Captain Crunch, keep them boys in line. You're no longer Coach O, you're just some Southern judge. I'm offensive. Am I offensive to Southerners? I have a Coach O thing and a Stetson Barnett thing that I'm sure are offensive to Southerners. I think you can probably tell that I don't care. Nathan, who would be your character, your serial character that you would be? Does the, the Quaker Oats guy count? My God, that is the greatest Nathan Baird answer of all time. <laughs> He's got a tri-cornered hat and his cereal is good for you. I'm Nathan Baird. It was it was either going to be that or uh, or Captain Crunch because of the facial hair. But I I also don't really uh, I don't do maritime things. I don't like <laughs> I don't like go boating or even like going to the beach that much and stuff. So I didn't know if that really qualified. <laughs> Is oatmeal cereal? <laughs> It's oatmeal, the oatmeal guy. Nate, uh, Stephen, what's your box? It's a, it's a hot cereal. Stephen, are you a leprechaun or what? You the Lucky Charms rabbit? What are you? Uh, the Lucky Charms rabbit. That's not even. Oh, it is a rabbit. Wait, no, no, that's not the rabbit. No, that's a trick. No, rabbit. not the uh, the yes, tricks the rabbit. Tricks. Yeah. No, um, I like I like, that cherry, I like sure. I like Honey Nut Cheerios. Is pretty much that, and Cinnamon Toast Crunch are the only cereals I eat. So I guess I'll go with the B. And the Cinnamon Toast Crunch mascot, is it not true, is in fact a piece of Cinnamon Toast cinnamon, Crunch. It is now. It used to be some old like chef on the box, but now it is a piece of – it's a cannibal. Right. Literally. Right. You would eat – right. That's, that's dicey. Uh, I think I would be one of – I'd like to hang out with Snap, Crackle, and Pop because I feel like they're kind of like a boy band, and they feel kind of like they're, they're upbeat. They're snapping, and they're crackling, and they're popping. So, um, and they are a little maritime, I think, though. One of them has a neckerchief. I'm not sure if he's on a ship or what, but I would go with snap, crackle, and pop. The maritime became the word of the day here at the end of the podcast. Coach O doesn't prefer it in maritime either. Down here, you get on a swamp boat sometimes, get out there, recruit <laughs> some of those boys. But again, I just like to restate the fact that I would choose Blueberry. All right.
I got so angry. I didn't mean to get angry. No, I did mean to get angry. What are you going to do? That was a long podcast. That felt good. That was a good one. I felt good about it. Picks and preview pod will be out Friday morning. We appreciate you guys listening to that one. Post-game podcast on Saturday. Steven and Nathan will be there at noon in Ohio Stadium for a top 10 matchup, Buckeyes and the Hoosiers. We didn't talk about that at all today. We had talked about Indiana too much in the previous podcast. We'll get back to talk about Indiana on Friday. For now, for Steven and Nathan, I'm Doug. Nathan, you asleep yet? Just about. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs> <laughs>